0: President Biden is set to deliver a primetime speech tonight on the fight for what he calls the soul of the nation, revisiting a theme he ran on for the November midterm elections. Our story is coming up. Today is Thursday, the 1st of September. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead as children wrap up their first week of school, we check in with educators and mental health providers about how the kids are doing emotionally. Airline pilots are warning that travelers may face more chaos this Labor Day weekend. And millions of Americans live in affordable mobile home parks, but many of them are at the mercy of huge corporations that critics say intentionally forego basic upkeep.
1: They're taking advantage of a group of people that really don't have the resources to fight against it.
0: We'll look at how residents of One Park are fighting back, coming up, it's 4.01.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Jackson, Mississippi is heading into a fourth night of a water emergency. Local officials say they've opened seven locations distributing bottled water as well as non-drinking water to wash clothes, flush toilets, and bathe. Boil water orders are nothing new for the city, but when a slow-moving storm caused the Pearl River to overflow and flood Jackson, the city's already fragile main water treatment plant failed. Low water pressure and heightened risks for contamination catapulted the predominantly black city of more than 160,000 into an even bigger emergency. Nashambi Lambright, executive director of One Voice Mississippi, blames disputes between state and local officials for delays in much
3: needed repairs to the water infrastructure. I think we could have had funding back in January, February, March. But the first thing I remember the governor saying was that um, crime was the number one priority in Jackson.
2: Extreme weather conditions likely to become more frequent because of climate change. A heat wave is engulfing the western U.S. Two major fires are burning in Southern California. KCRW's Megan Jamerson has the latest.
4: Crews are making progress, containing the explosive wildfire in North Los Angeles County that led to the evacuation of an elementary school and residents of 200 homes on Wednesday. But Chief Robert Garcia of the Angeles National Forest warns that the extreme and excessive heat expected to last through Labor Day, coupled with the regional drought, increases the threat of additional fires.
5: The fire behavior and what you saw yesterday should be a wake up call to us all about the potential that we're in and we're entering into over the next few days in terms of the fire conditions.
4: Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency in California, with temperatures expected to be up to 20 degrees above normal. For NPR News, I'm Megan Jamerson in Los Angeles.
2: South African environmental activists are celebrating a huge victory after. A High Court blocked oil company Shell's bid to explore for oil and gas off the Eastern Cape Coast.
1: Here's Cape Bartlett. The Eastern Cape High Court ruled against the exploration rights previously granted to the oil giant to conduct a seismic survey in the pristine wild coast, the waters of which are home to humpback whales and other marine life. Last year, the High Court halted the survey after coastal communities and activists took Shell to court. Now the judges ruled against the exploration rights altogether. Greenpeace Programme Director Melita Steele says the ruling sets an important precedent.
6: It is proof that the world is moving into an era of social and environmental justice, where the voices of people are put before the profits of toxic fossil fuel
1: companies. Shell now has the option of going to the Supreme Court. Kate Bartlett, NPR News, Johannesburg. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Early voting for next Tuesday's Massachusetts primary ends tomorrow. Today, the state's chief election officer predicted turnout for the election will come up short of the record that was set two years ago. WBR's Vanessa Ochevillo explains.
7: Secretary of State Bill Galvin says two things drove record turnout in 2020 mail-in voting during the pandemic, and intense U.S. Senate and congressional races.
8: You don't have any of that this time, but I still think it's going to be going up. It's accelerating. You have these intense contests on both sides, and I think that's going to bring out a pretty good vote.
7: Galvin says voters who are not affiliated with either party have requested more than 50 percent of the mail-in ballots. 22 percent of the independents want to vote in the Republican primary. Galvin says unenrolled voters want to have a say in the GOP gubernatorial race between Jeff Deal and Chris Doty. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. There will soon be
0: more alternative transportation options for people who are dealing with the Orange Line shutdown. The MBTA and Keolis announced today the commuter rail will make more stops every day at the Forest Hill Station in Jamaica Plain. The changes in anticipation of increased ridership after Labor Day. The new schedule starts Saturday. It runs through the end of the Orange Line shutdown. Vice President Kamala Harris will be in Boston on Labor Day Monday. The White House said today she'll be celebrating the holiday with labor leaders and other advocates. She'll attend the annual Labor Day breakfast in the city with elected leaders from around the state. The rain we've picked up over the past week has not put much of a dent in our drought. The U.S. drought monitor finds 38 percent of the state is under extreme drought. Conditions. That's down just one percentage point from a week ago. Those extreme drought conditions cover all of the immediate Boston area, Cape Ann, and parts of the South Coast. We should have clear skies overnight tonight, cooler with temperatures in the mid 50s. And for tomorrow, lots of sunshine, highs in the upper 70s once again. Weekend's looking pretty good right now. Lots of sunshine with temperatures in the 80s. 77 degrees now in Boston at 406.
9: WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR.
10: things considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden is heading to Pennsylvania tonight where he will give a rare primetime speech on what the White House calls the battle for the soul of the nation. The speech in downtown Philadelphia is about threats to democracy. It's a return to a message that Biden used in his 2020 campaign. And Biden is expected again to take sharp aim at Republicans tonight. Here to talk about all of this is pure White House correspondent Franco Ordóñez. Hey Franco. Hey Elsa. Okay, so what else can you tell us about what to expect from the president's speech tonight?
12: Well, Kareem Jean-Pierre, Biden's press secretary, told us to expect the president to speak about how he sees Republican followers of former President Donald Trump as a threat to democracy. Biden says they don't respect the rule of law and that they have refused to accept the results of the election. He calls them MAGA Republicans and says they support a kind of semi-fascism. The president has been more aggressively taking on Republicans in recent weeks, you know, as he did in Maryland last week.
8: They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace, embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy.
12: You know, it's really quite a shift from his earlier efforts to find compromise with Republicans over the course of much of his first year.
8: I mean, but
11: this message, it isn't a new area for him, right? Like, why is he giving this speech now? Is he
12: basically... I don't know, just campaigning for the midterms? You know, Biden has cited recent events as an example of why fighting for democracy is more important than ever. You know, he's pointed to the suppression of voting rights and threats to abortion and reproductive health care, for example. You know, the White House says this is not political, but I mean, of course, the midterms are just around the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked with uh, Doug Sosnick. He was a former advisor to President Bill Clinton. You know, he says Biden was struggling, uh, but really changed his momentum recently. He was teetering on
13: getting to that point where people just weren't going to pay attention to him and they tuned
12: him out. You know, that new momentum has come from his legislative wins and concerns about the abortion ruling in the Supreme Court, as well as the ongoing coverage of Trump's legal problems. And Sostek says people are now more willing to listen, especially independent voters. You know, he specifically cited new polling that shows independents have moved more into the Democrats camp before the midterm elections. Hmm.
13: In a, in a world that's increasingly become bifurcated, I mean, to the extent there, there's 30 percent of the people out there who are, you know, who are open, you know, to persuasion.
12: You know, and he said those are the people who are now probably more willing and interested to hear what the president has to say tonight. And that's part of the reason why Biden is giving this primetime address.
11: Well, President Biden's second stop in Pennsylvania, this is his second stop in Pennsylvania in like three days, right? And he's going back there again over the long weekend. Can you just explain why there's so much focus on Pennsylvania in particular?
12: You know, Biden is from Scranton and Pennsylvania is where he launched his 2020 campaign. And this week has been kind of a kickoff for Biden, who promises to do more campaigning before the midterms. And Pennsylvania is an incredibly important state in those upcoming races. You know, it has competitive House races and a gubernatorial contest and a key Senate race that could help determine control of the Senate. So there's a lot riding on this period. That
11: is NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you, Franco.
12: Thank you, Elsa.
10: In many parts of the country, kids are about to wrap up their first week of school, and teachers are happy to have them back for what they hope is a relatively COVID free school year. But there's one more thing educators and healthcare providers are preparing for another wave of kids struggling with their mental health. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports.
4: To understand why educators and healthcare providers are concerned about kids' mental health, we have to step back to this time last year. WHEN STUDENTS CAME BACK INTO CLASSROOMS, MANY FOR THE FIRST TIME SINCE SPRING OF 2020, AND
8: EDUCATORS WERE THRILLED. WE WERE VERY EXCITED BECAUSE WE WERE GOING TO HAVE ALL OUR KIDS BACK.
4: BOB Mullaney IS SUPERINTENDENT OF Millis PUBLIC SCHOOLS IN MASSACHUSETTS. BUT HE SAYS THE LAST SCHOOL YEAR TURNED OUT TO BE A
8: TOUGH ONE. WE HAD A LOT OF KIDS WITH ELEVATED LEVELS OF ANXIETY AND STRESS. Kids who are fearful coming to school, fearful of contracting COVID. We had uh, an increase in students reporting suicidal ideation. It was a lot.
4: Data from the National Center for Education Statistics shows that in the previous academic year, 76 percent of public schools reported concerns around student mental health, and only half said they felt equipped to address the problem. And data from emergency rooms show a rise in the number of kids seeking help for mental health crises. Even after schools close for the summer, hospitals have continued to see children and adolescents seeking care for mental health. So, healthcare providers and educators are expecting that kids are still struggling, especially in the country's most marginalized communities where families are still reeling from the impacts of the pandemic.
14: Things like loss of life, loss of jobs, food insecurity, Homes, you know, kids not having, you know, predictable homes. The, the predictability and routine completely disrupted.
4: Elisa Villanueva-Beard is CEO of Teach for America, which caters to schools in underserved communities. She says her organization is sensitizing teachers to the emotional states of their students.
14: We have to actually equip our teachers to be able to approach classrooms in a trauma-informed way and they all want this. So we as part of our training curriculum are really teaching our teachers how to be emotionally available. That's the right approach, says
4: psychologist Janice Beal, who works with schools in the Houston area.
3: Every morning, five minutes, check in with the students and have everybody share how they're feeling for that particular day.
4: Beal says it's something she's been telling teachers as they prepare for the school
3: year. So the teachers, we don't want them to be mental health professionals. We want you to be able to understand what mental health concerns may be in your classroom and to be able to recognize them so that you can refer them.
4: Beale has also created a team of mental health ambassadors, students
3: who have been trained as peer counselors. The ambassador's role will be able to, if someone was you know, having some type of difficulty, to come and talk to them. So
4: kids feel more comfortable sharing their mental health struggles and seeking help before they reach a crisis point. Dr. Tammy Benton is psychiatrist-in-chief at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She says she's heartened by how proactive schools have been regarding student mental health going into the school year.
2: This year, what we can expect is a more open approach by schools and communities to understanding these mental health challenges and actually having much more education about how to respond. And
10: that
4: gives her hope that this school year might make it a little easier for students to get help. Ritu Chatterjee NPR news.
10: If you or a loved one is experiencing a mental health crisis, you can dial or text the new Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Lawyers for former President Trump and the Justice Department squared off today in a Florida courtroom. Trump's lawyers want a federal judge to appoint a special master, an independent person to review documents seized last month at Trump's Palm Beach residence Mar-a-Lago. Lawyers for the Justice Department told the judge that's unnecessary, and they say it would interfere with their ongoing investigation of the former president. NPR's Greg Allen was in the courtroom. And Greg, what did the judge say about whether she's going to appoint a special master or not?
15: Well, she did not rule from the bench today, Ari. She said she would issue a written order in due course, in her words. In an order last month, she said, though, it was her preliminary intent to appoint a special master. And today she asked the government what harm would be caused by an independent review of, w- of what's going on there. Justice Department lawyer Jay Brett said that Jay Brett said it would slow down the investigation. He raised concerns about how the classified material would be handled by whoever does uh, serve in that role. And his main argument, though, was that the material seized belongs to the government, not the former President Trump. He said, uh, Bratz said he's no longer the president because that he doesn't have the right to those documents. And that ends the analysis. What do Trump's lawyers want a special master to do? Well, it was interesting in court today, Trump's lawyers started out talking about the need for the special master to review documents that may be subject to attorney-client privilege, and that to return any that would be covered by that. Judge Eileen Cannon, who's a Trump appointee, by the way, Asked them, well, what about executive privilege? And then one of Trump's lawyers, Jim Trusty, picked up on that and he said, Oh, yes, executive privilege is in play as well. And that, as you know, is a highly contentious issue, whether a former president can assert a claim of executive privilege against the current executive branch. The government objected to that position. It brought up that brought up a discussion of a case that involved President Richard Nixon and that was back during the Watergate era, the Watergate investigation, and it was a case that Nixon lost. The government said firmly that it would be unprecedented for a former president to assert an executive privilege claim against the executive branch.
10: Now, the government argues that it was just executing a search warrant the same way it does every day in cases all across the country, but
15: this is hardly an ordinary case, right? Right, and I think that's at the crux of the uh, of the uh, case that the Trump lawyers are making here. They told the judge that the search has raised questions about the integrity of the investigation and the need for transparency. They called the release in court documents of a photo this week that showed classified documents strewn over the Mar-a-Lago's carpeted floor, uh, basically a press release by the government. They said appointing a special master would help quote, restore order and public confidence in the process. They suggested that Trump has a right under the Presidential Records Act to access these documents. They said this isn't some uh, Department of Defense uh, staffer who stuck documents in a bag and snuck them out in the middle of the night. They seemed to indicate this was much different from that. They said a search the, the search that was done at Mar-a-Lago raises, quote, a broad concern about the for the institution of president. So the judge asked a lot of questions today, and she listened attentively to all their arguments. And we'll now have to just await her decision. She also ordered more documents
10: unsealed today, right? What are those?
15: Right. Well, the, uh, she said an inventory of all the materials that were seized at Mar-a-Lago last month would be unsealed. That came at uh, was approved by both sides. She also said a status report by the investigation team could be unsealed. But there's another status report uh, that's being done by Justice Department staff who are reviewing this potentially privileged material. They have a report out too, and the, the judge said that would not be unsealed at this time. That's because both the government and Trump's team feel that it has sensitive information and they want it to remain sealed right now.
10: That is NPR's Greg Allen reporting from West Palm Beach,
15: Florida. Thank you. You're welcome.
11: Listening to All Things
0: Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A newly released report by the National Science Foundation shows that sexual harassment is a serious problem for women who are stationed in Antarctic research facilities. That story is coming up next.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering a part-time master's degree in arts administration and a graduate certificate in arts management focused on the management, fundraising, policy, and legal issues of mission-driven arts organizations. Learn more at bu.edu.
0: met on Wall Street, the Dow and S&P started the month of September by snapping a four-day losing streak. The Dow rose nearly a half percent, 146 points, to close at 31,656. S&P gained three-tenths of a percent to close at 39.67. The Nasdaq dipped a quarter of a percent to end the day at 11,785. Cannabis industry leaders want to make marijuana delivery easier in Massachusetts. Delivery company owners and members of the State Cannabis Advisory Board have created an online petition to change marijuana delivery regulations. Currently, regulations require two drivers per delivery and allow individual municipalities to ban marijuana delivery outright. The group has directed this petition to the State Cannabis Control Commission. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business.
9: Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities and Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com.
0: In the forecast, sunshine through the evening hours with clear skies tonight, lows about 55. Tomorrow should be a glorious one. Sunshine, light winds, temperatures a little bit cooler, about 73 degrees, 77 now in Boston. This is WBUR.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who will do whatever it takes to save their congregation, in theaters and streaming on Peacock tomorrow. From OCLC through WorldCat.org, committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at WorldCat.org. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Unfortunately, there are no continents on the planet without sexual harassment, and that includes Antarctica. A new report reveals that sexual harassment and sexual assault are major problems at U.S. Antarctic facilities. The report was commissioned by the National Science Foundation, which runs the Antarctic program. The report found that nearly three-quarters of women working there felt sexual harassment was an issue. Nearly half were worried about sexual assaults. NPR's Joe Palka has been reading through the 273-page report and is here in the studio to tell us about it. Hey, Joe. Hey, Ari. What are some of the revelations in the report?
17: Well, one of the things that jumps out at you is how pervasive this problem seems to be. They quoted one of the people they interviewed as saying, every woman I know down there has had an assault or harassment experience that occurred on ice. On ice is what they call working down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a sentiment that they uh, heard from many, many different people. The report also said that many people didn't trust the officials they were supposed to report to when they had a problem because they thought – a, they might be there might be reprisals, or B, they were thinking that the, these people were more interested in protecting the agencies hmm. than protecting the people. Is there something about working in Antarctica that makes this more of a problem? Well, I've been to Antarctica, and it's very remote, and uh, even though the internet has made it smaller. It's just not a place that you can walk down the street and see anybody. Um, Much of the year, these bases are totally inaccessible. The sun disappears for months in the winter, and that means the staff doesn't have anywhere to go or anyone to talk to. I spoke with Madeline Nash. She's an associate dean at the Australia National University. She studies harassment in in Australia's Antarctic program.
18: You're so isolated and so detached from the sort of normal roles of society that often it makes it sort of, for lack of a better word, it makes it easier to get away with inappropriate behavior that probably wouldn't be condoned, you know, back in normal life.
17: So imagine if it's your supervisor doing the harassing. Harassing. It's not like you can go down the hall and complain. That supervisor's supervisor might be thousands of miles away. Has a problem like this been documented before? Well, Nash says many people who've worked in Antarctica know it's an ongoing issue.
18: Anecdotally, the information that's presented in this report is widely known that women in particular suffer greatly, that sexual harassment
17: is a significant problem. But what's unique about this report is that it puts some numbers behind the problem and shows it's really pervasive. And now to be fair, Nash says it was NSF that commissioned the study, so they're aware there's a problem. And now that it's out, what does National Science Foundation have to say about it? Well, Roberta Marinelli is head of the Office of Polar Programs.
19: It wasn't surprising to me to hear um, some of the stories that we heard. It's certainly disappointing.
17: Marinelli says one of the things she thinks will improve the situation is to make it easier and less fraught for people to report incidents of harassment.
11: But more important than that is we have to create an environment in which this kind of of behavior just isn't tolerated.
10: Those sound like the right words, but is there the will to actually do something?
17: Well, um, who can say for sure? Uh, there are some structural issues that make it difficult to make changes in the Antarctic. I mean, there's the military that transports people, they're contractors, they're scientists who have their own rules and institutions they have to live the rules they have to live by. So coming up with a strategy strategy that's going to be acceptable to everyone is going to be a challenge. But at the end of the day, this is NSF's responsibility. That's NPR's Joe Palka. Thanks, Joe. You're welcome.
11: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. All right, today is getaway day for a lot of people traveling for the Labor Day holiday weekend. And the number of people flying is expected to be near pre pandemic levels. That means you will probably find long lines, crowded gates, and packed planes. And airline pilots are warning travelers that there could be more delays and cancellations. They've been picketing at airports today to call on airline management to fix the operational problems that have plagued air travel all summer long. We're going to check in now with NPR's David Shaper, who is at O'Hare Airport in Chicago right this very second. Hey, David.
5: Hi, Elsa. So can you just describe the scene there? Like, how busy is it? Are there any problems yet? Yeah. You know, it's it's very busy. There was heavy traffic heading into the airport, long lines of check-in counters. The line for the security checkpoint was outside of the security area, so it was actually creating some very congested foot traffic in the area that I'm in. You know, I talked to one traveler who was upset because she had been waiting over a half an hour for a wheelchair, likely because of short staffing for wheelchair attendance. And she was concerned that she might miss her flight. But another traveler I talked to who's on his way to Las Vegas thought, as busy as it is here, things are running more smoothly than he had expected. Although I think a lot of people's expectations are not all that high now, (laughs) but flights are on time here for the most part. That's not how it's been much of the summer though. And I talked to aviation consumer advocate, Bill McGee about that, and he thinks air travelers might be, see more of the same this weekend.
10: The fact is we've never seen this level of what the industry calls flight disruptions, which is,
13: you know, extensive delays and cancellations. And, you know, you couple that with all the unpaid refunds. It's just been a miserable summer for air travel
11: not that right? Well, mm. we mentioned the picketing pilots are warning people of possible delays, more cancellations. What is their central message?
5: Well, it kind of depends on which airline the pilots fly for and what specific problems they've encountered at that airline. For pilots in America, the big issue has been scheduling. And the pilots say they feel that they're stretched too thin and pushed to the limit. And the number of fatigue complaints is up substantially other pilots and other airlines want better working conditions and more rest between flights too. Most of the airlines have had these operational problems due to scheduling too many flights, more flights than they can actually staff due to a shortage of pilots and other employees and they said that's what's at the heart of all these delays and cancellations this summer. Captain Roger Phillips is a 767 pilot for United Airlines and spokesman for the pilots union here. We want this fixed. We want the traveling public to able to have a
20: seamless experience in the air and and we're here to to
5: make that happen as as quickly as possible now many of the pilots union contracts are expiring too and so they're doing this informational picketing on their days off to try to pressure the airlines to also come to the bargaining table
11: well, in terms of travelers, I understand that the Department of Transportation has a new tool for air travelers so they can see like what they're owed from the airline, which might come in handy for people this weekend. Can you tell yeah. us about that?
5: Yeah, it's a new website, an online dashboard that more clearly explains what the airlines are required to do for you under the law when your flight is delayed or canceled. And it also provides side-by-side comparisons on what customer services they'll provide when flight disruptions are their fault, like which ones will provide meal vouchers or cash if your flight is delayed more than three hours, and whether they'll pay for a hotel room if you're stranded overnight.
11: That is NPR's transportation correspondent, David Shaper. Thank you so much, David.
5: Oh, my pleasure.
10: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR, how residents of a mobile home park are pressing park management to keep the homes livable. Join On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty Wednesday, September 7th for a free discussion with epidemiologists who are exploring the state of infectious diseases As we head into the fall, details at WBUR.org slash events. We should have clear skies tonight, a crescent moon falling to the mid-50s. Lucky us, sunshine is set to return tomorrow and Saturday, too. Highs tomorrow in the low 70s, so on the cooler side, but should shoot up to 81 degrees on Saturday. And then Sunday, maybe some afternoon clouds, sunshine dimmed by a few clouds, maybe some showers as well. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners,
16: and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, with locations in Boston, Milford, and the South Shore, and now Foxborough. Learn more at youhaveus.org. And Davis Malm, committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. More at davismalm.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.
21: Public transit often got crowded in the before times. Now, though?
15: Yeah, I, I'm not going to complain about getting a seat. Um, although, of course, you know, transit works best and most efficient when it's it's packed.
21: I'm Kai Rizdal, Seattle, struggling with low ridership next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 630 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
22: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The congressional midterm elections and threats to democracy are expected to be the focus tonight when President Biden delivers a rare primetime address from Philadelphia. As Katie Meyer with member station WHYY tells us, Pennsylvania is a critical battleground state that both President Biden and former President Trump are focusing time and money on ahead of the November election. President Biden's speech in Philadelphia comes as the president
12: has increasingly struck a more aggressive tone against Republicans, comparing support of former President Donald Trump to semi-fascism.
13: The very survival of our planet is on the ballot. Your right to vote is on the ballot. Even the democracy. Are you ready to fight for these things now?
12: It's the second time this week Biden is traveling to Pennsylvania a critical state in the midterm elections. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News.
22: The National Guard has set up sites for distributing water in Jackson, Mississippi, NPR's. Jennifer Ludden tells us it's a major expansion of aid since a treatment plant failure this week left more than 160,000 people without safe water.
12: President Biden's speech in Philadelphia comes as the president has increasingly struck a more aggressive tone against Republicans. Comparing support of former President Donald Trump to semi-fascism.
13: The very survival of our planet is on the ballot. Your right to vote is on the ballot. Even the democracy. Are you ready to fight for these things now?
12: It's the second time this week Biden is traveling to Pennsylvania, a critical state in the midterm elections. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News.
22: Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today, ending a four-day losing streak. The Dow gained almost half a percent. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new data analysis from UMass Amherst shows this summer the Northeast warmed at the fastest rate of any region in the country. Worcester, Providence, and Hartford had their warmest August on record. Boston recorded 21 days of 90 degrees or warmer this summer. The average of been 10 a year. Michael Rollins is associate director of the Climate System Research Center at UMass Amherst. He says the region is dangerously close to what he calls a worrisome level of warming.
8: The combination of factors in both the atmosphere, the land surface, and the
0: western Atlantic Ocean may be contributing to this faster warming we're seeing across the northeast U.S. Rollins says a lack of snow this winter is one reason for more days of intense heat. Companies appear to have high interest in offering sports betting in Massachusetts. The state gaming commission today said that 42 companies have announced their plan to apply for a sports betting license. There will be 17 licenses available. The commission is still determining the process for considering the applications and regulating the new industry. Last month, Governor Charlie Baker signed a bill that legalizes sports betting in the state. Former President Donald Trump is set to campaign for Massachusetts Republican gubernatorial candidate Jeff Deal by telephone. He's gonna join the former state rep in a pre-primary tele-rally Monday evening to get out the vote. Deal is facing Chris Doty in the Republican primary. The winner is expected to face Democratic Attorney General Maura Healey in November. A raina man who began the organization Operation Flags for Vets has been laid to rest. Paul Monty's funeral was held today. His son, Army Sergeant Jared Monty, died in 2006 in Afghanistan. Paul Monte began the organization that places flags on military graves because the cemetery where his son is buried did not do so at the time. WBR's Alex Ashlock was at today's services.
23: Governor Charlie Baker called
8: Monte a warrior for veterans and their families. A long procession took Monte's body to the National Cemetery on Cape Cod, led by or including Jared Monte's truck, the truck Paul used to drive. Paul Monte's being buried near his son, Jared, at the National Cemetery in Bourne.
0: Paul Monty died last week. He was 76. His story inspired the hit Lee Bryce country song, I Drive Your Truck. In the forecast, sunshine to take us into the evening, then a clear night tonight. May need an extra blanket. Lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sun's back. Temperatures should only reach the low to mid-70s. 77 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We turn now to a David and Goliath fight in Florida. Residents of a mobile home park there are suing the multi-billion dollar company that owns it. Millions of Americans live in mobile home parks because mobile homes are the only homes they can afford to buy. But they only own the structures, not what's underneath them. So many are now at the mercy of big companies that own the land where their homes sit. NPR's Chris Arnold and Robert Benincasa report.
21: Five years ago, Mike Noel retired and moved from Rhode Island to Florida. And he thought he'd found the perfect spot a mobile home community named Heritage Plantation. It's about 20 minutes from the ocean in Vero Beach. I thought I
24: was moving to paradise and, and uh, you know, beautiful weather. And I could fish 12 months of the year instead of three or four months like in Rhode Island.
20: Noel was a manager at a small company that made stainless steel screws. He spent most of his modest retirement savings buying a home here. It looks more like a regular house than what you might think of as a mobile home.
21: Yeah, it's got a small yard, a covered carport, little spot for his gear. This is my shed. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah. So you've got a, a whole bunch of fishing rods. Yeah.
20: They're called mobile homes because they get brought in on trucks and big pieces. But then they're screwed together and put up on foundations.
21: And basically, they're not mobile after that. And since the mobile home park owns the land underneath them, that makes this a pretty vulnerable form of home ownership. Noel says he learned that the hard way after it started to rain.
24: The first time it flooded here, it was like, holy crap, this is is not
20: good. And he says whenever a hard rain came through, the roads and driveways flooded, and it wouldn't drain away for hours or sometimes days.
24: When the 10th time that it flooded, well, I had started reaching my limits, because now it wasn't just two, three, four, five inches, it was two feet or a foot.
21: Residents say that the water has damaged their homes. and is often deep enough that people get trapped in their houses. Some are elderly. They say emergency vehicles have refused to respond to calls due to the flooding.
24: The people across the street are in their 90s. I know people that couldn't get to their chemotherapy
21: appointments. Residents here say there have been other issues, too. Problems with electrical wiring, potholes and bad lighting that's caused people to fall on the roads at night and end up in the hospital. People like 79-year-old Stan Paxton. He says he needed shoulder surgery after he fell
20: on slimy residue that regularly gets left behind by the flooding.
8: I was just walking my dog. Next thing I know, my left foot goes up from underneath me and I'm going down this way and I hit the pavement with my shoulder.
20: A group of residents has detailed these and other complaints in a lawsuit against the park's owner, a company called Equity Lifestyle Properties, or ELS. They allege that ELS has ignored their complaints and failed to fix the broken stormwater drain system for about 20 years. ELS denies wrongdoing.
21: What these residents say they're dealing with may be part of a much bigger problem. Millions of Americans live in mobile home parks and many desperately need this affordable housing option. But in recent years, big companies have been buying up mobile home parks around the country.
20: And critics say some are making enormous profits, collecting and raising rents on their often lower income residents without spending enough money, even on basic
21: upkeep. Complaints about mobile home park companies range from sewage backups, water and power outages, and in some cases, aggressive eviction policies and unfair business practices.
1: They're taking advantage of a group of people that really don't have the resources to fight against it.
20: That's Beth Fagan an attorney whose law firm sued Harvey Weinstein as part of the Me Too movement. Mike Noel and some other residents managed to
21: track her down. And she took the case. She's filed the lawsuit in federal court against ELS.
1: It's a nationwide company that knows it's wrong and won't do anything about it.
20: ELS is a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company that lists about 200 mobile home parks in its portfolio. It also owns RV parks and marinas.
21: Its net income was about $263 million last year. Fagan says the problems with mobile home parks go way beyond this one individual case.
1: We're trying to right a wrong that we see that is systemic in an industry and really use it as an example to let the industry know that we're going to come after them. Right, If they don't put the money in to, to maintain the infrastructure in these parks, that we're willing to take on that fight.
20: She says in the case of the residents at the Vero Beach Park,
1: The park knows that they cannot pick up their home and leave. And so these complaints have really just gone ignored.
20: The manager at the ELS park wouldn't talk to us when we visited. ELS said in a statement that homeowners are free to sell their homes and often do. ELS says that the lawsuit misrepresents conditions at the park and that the company invests in it to
21: ensure it remains a desirable neighborhood. ELS also says that the suit only involves three residents out of the hundreds who live there but that's not really true. Technically, there are three plaintiffs, but 27 residents signed court papers in support of the lawsuit getting class action status, and Beth Fagan says more than 75 answered questionnaires to help her with the case. We did meet with some residents, though, who yeah, don't support the lawsuit.
25: Come um, on in. I'm Robert.
21: Hi, I'm, I'm Chris. Nice to meet You're you. You're Chris? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, Richard? Dick. Yeah. Dick Dick. Dick and Jean Bruce welcome us into their really nice manufactured home here. They've got an antique banjo clock on the wall. It was her grandfather's and other keepsakes. Dick is
20: a former head of the park's homeowners association,
21: and he's not a big fan of this lawsuit.
9: I'm not an advocate per se for ELS. I'm just going to say that they're not as bad as what some folks will make it sound
21: like. The couple's retired, and they worry that forcing the company to spend more money will result in the company charging them higher rent for the land underneath their home.
2: I'm not saying I don't want the flooding fixed, but we need to be aware of what we are asking for and what we may get. We're on a fixed income, but we've seen our in- our rent go up every year. Yep.
20: The Bruces tell NPR they recently moved out of Heritage Plantation because of differences with their neighbors about the lawsuit. They also say the flooding isn't as bad as it used to be. In its statement, ELS says it has already spent more than $300,000 improving the storm drain system over the last three years, and that it is, quote, fully operational and compliant.
21: Some residents say it seemed to them, though, that major repairs only started happening after the homeowners here began organizing and meeting with lawyers, and they say there is still a flooding problem. ELS wouldn't
20: do an interview, but a former ELS board member and current shareholder, Michael Torres, agreed to talk. He says collecting rents without having a lot of expenses is exactly what makes mobile home parks a good investment.
15: It's just basically resurfacing roads and having a shared community center. You don't own walls and roofs.
21: The residents have to fix their own roofs.
20: Torres now manages more than $2 billion through his company, Adelante Capital Management. It invests in publicly traded real estate investment trusts
21: like ELS.
15: I consider it the kind of the
21: gold standard of investing in property. And Torres doesn't seem to have too much sympathy for the homeowners at the park in Florida. Streets flood. You know, you chose that
15: community, buyer beware. It's like people that move next to a school and complain about the noise. I mean, there's always basically somebody that has, you know, some complaint.
20: Torres says nobody forces residents to buy homes in a particular park. He was not speaking on behalf of the company, but adds. I mean,
15: unfortunately, it's called landlord for a reason.
21: Meaning uh, the landlord controls the universe there and their tenants are at their mercy, basically?
23: Pretty much. Pretty much.
20: As for the lawsuit, Torres says he doesn't know all the facts, but he's not particularly worried about it as an investor in ELS.
15: It's a nuisance. It's just part of the cost of doing business.
21: Okay, maybe, but the lawsuit says that ELS is responsible for providing an adequate stormwater drainage system. This case involves the residents at this one ELS park, but NPR spoke to a former manager, Ann, at a different ELS park in Florida. She described very similar problems.
26: We would have constant flooding and we would have like catfish swimming in the roads.
20: Ann says she worked there for several years until 2017. And doesn't want to use her whole name for fear of hurting her ability to get another job. She says sometimes people would get stuck in their homes at that park, too, because the water was too deep to drive through.
26: They wouldn't be able to leave because if they did try, the water would then get into their engine.
20: How often did this happen?
26: Anytime it rained heavily.
21: Anne says as the park manager, she repeatedly asked ELS to fix the flooding problems.
26: Oh, at least three times a year but we never received any kind of
21: response, basically saying that there was like nothing that they could really do. This is not the first time that residents have banded together to sue ELS.
20: Jim Allen is a lawyer in California who brought a case involving an ELS park there in 2009. He remembers there were kids in that park, and his suit alleged the playground was dangerous.
13: It had sharp edges. It had a slide you couldn't use. They had a lake, and the lake basically stunk. It, it was just, it was putrid.
21: Allen says there are so many mobile home parks neglecting residents that representing residents is now the heart of his law practice. In the case of the California ELS Park, he alleged that the electrical system in the park was shot, power would go out to the homes regularly, sewage backed up in some houses. And there's something else. Alan argued in the trial that ELS
20: had a bonus structure that incentivized managers to squeeze out more profits by forgoing maintenance.
13: So what happens then is, you know, you want to get your bonus so you don't authorize repairs. And that's why it was such a rundown condition.
21: ELS says that it encourages park managers to act in the best interest of the property and the residents and that the manager at the Heritage Plantation Park in Florida received her full bonus last year, despite the property being over budget. In addition to the lawsuit at that park, the
20: local government has gotten involved. Indian River County has been fining ELS $100 a day because the broken stormwater system appears to be dumping water into county sewers. When we visited the park, we met with Joe Earman, a county commissioner.
9: I think as of today, they're up to owe in the county $146,700 because basically their uh, stormwater is, is going in our
21: sewer system. ELS says it's repaired the problem and is now working to resolve the issue with the county. But Ehrman says it shouldn't take 20 years for the flooding problems residents have been struggling with here to get fixed.
9: It's frustrating to me as a county commissioner because how about you just do the right thing? This company needs to fix the stormwater issue here, and I think they can afford it. In the California case, the residents
20: eventually got a $10 million settlement, though ELS did not admit liability. But that took more than seven years. Beth Fagan expects the current case will go to trial in
21: January. I'm Robert Benincasa. And I'm Chris Arnold, NPR News.
10: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, historians were invited to the White House to advise President Biden on threats to democracy, but they faced criticism for all being white and for the parts of history they drew from. Also, as summer comes to a close, we'll take a last swim at a cool pond in New York's Adirondack Mountains. In the forecast to overnight tonight should be... Clear skies for the most part. You should have uh, temperatures in the mid-50s. And for tomorrow, sunshine once again. Temperatures only in the low to mid-70s. 77 degrees now in the Boston area. Texas Rangers meet the Red Sox at Fenway tonight for the first game of their four-game set. First pitch by Rich Hill is a 7-10. Glenn Otto pitches for the Rangers. And we will have live coverage tonight of President Biden's Addressed to the nation, the topic is democracy. The White House is calling the President's remark a primetime speech on the continued battle for the soul of the nation.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC member NYSE, SIPC, and Direct Tire and Auto Service. Proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com.
27: Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter.
9: People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for.
27: Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org slash sponsorship.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Earlier this month, President Biden brought a small group of historians together to help advise him on the crisis facing our democracy. The problem for some, the experts, were all white. NPR's Sandia Dirks reports.
28: The story of the meeting made the rounds on media. Here's Michael Smirconish on his Saturday
12: CNN show. Is American democracy teetering on the brink? That's what President Biden was warned by a group of esteemed historians in a private meeting at the White House.
28: The screen flashes to five faces, those invited, all white faces. But the criticism around who got a seat at the table goes a lot deeper than just a lack of diversity. It's about
12: what that lack can lead to. The historians compared the threat facing America to the era leading up to the Civil War and to the pro-fascist movements that preceded World War II.
28: Those comparisons are missing something, says Kenneth Mack.
13: We don't really have to look outside the United States, nor do we really have to look all the way back to the Civil War, To think about things like voter suppression, demagoguery, and fascist tactics.
28: Mack is a professor of law and history at Harvard. He says post-Reconstruction America was deeply undemocratic.
13: We've had the death of democracy in this country. African Americans experience this directly.
28: The United States has already experimented in authoritarianism. That's University of Connecticut historian Manisha Sinha, She lists things that were happening, the rise of domestic racist terrorism, laws and political tricks to disenfranchise the Black vote, a conservative Supreme Court restricting freedoms. It was
26: primarily a racist authoritarianism. It's exactly what is happening now.
28: We don't really know if the historians talked about that with Biden. The basis of what we do know comes from a Washington Post story, as well as from two of the historians who were in the room who went on TV to talk about it. On MSNBC, presidential historian Michael Beschloss talked about the parallels of our current moment to the 30s and 40s. Here he is speaking to host Jonathan Capehart, who, just note, is Black.
22: So if we were living in 1940, you and I would have said there's a serious danger that America will not be a democracy because, A, there are people from within who want to make this an authoritarian system, and B, the Nazi Germans, the Italians, the Imperial Japanese, were living in a world where fascism is on the march.
28: It's telling that Beschloss says we, a black person in 1940, might already feel that America wasn't a democracy. As for the rising fascist movements Beschloss mentions, many historians have pointed out those movements actually borrowed heavily from Jim Crow and from America's brutal treatment of indigenous people. Princeton historian Sean Wilentz also didn't really talk about race in American history when he spoke on CNN. He did mention another historical moment he thinks parallels our current one, right before the Civil War.
22: The basic institutions of the country... The the legitimacy of those of those institutions is being called into serious question. That certainly happened before the Civil War it led to secession.
28: Across American history, Black people and people of color have had a justified, deep distrust of American institutions. But those aren't the crises of legitimacy that Willens is centering.
10: In having an all-white room, you kind of replicate the kind of gaps in perspective that we've seen that have facilitated this problem in the first place.
28: That's Jelani Cobb, Dean of Columbia Journalism School and a staff writer for The New Yorker. He says he's also troubled by Willens' problematic past thinking on race, including once saying Barack Obama ran the most racist campaign in modern history.
7: Here we have this crisis which is shot through
10: with racial elements, and that's the person in the room. Yeah, that,
22: that's a problem.
28: Who is in the room with the ear of the president matters, says historian Manisha Sinha. Because we've seen the death of democracy, we've also got a blueprint for its rebirth, a massive civil rights movement led by Black people and people of color, people who maintained a stubborn belief in America's promise and pushed the government to attempt a second reconstruction.
3: The only time in American democracy
28: that it has been protected has been when the federal government has responded in forceful ways. Earlier this year, President Biden met with another group. That included Harvard's Annette Gordon-Reed, a Black scholar who studies race, law, and history. In a statement, White House Director of African-American Media Erica Lowe wrote, Since day one, President Biden has regularly engaged with diverse stakeholders and community leaders who offer different perspectives on a variety of issues. Jelani Cobb says still, it's concerning. This all-white historians meeting happened at the same time there's a massive movement by Republicans to censor and silence the histories of Black and brown people in America. He says excluding the perspectives of scholars who study race is a kind of willful blindness.
20: Like there's a
10: map that will help us understand the moment we're in and we're plunging ourselves into complete darkness at that moment.
28: The path out? can only be seen if people in power are willing to look squarely at the role racism plays, past and present. I'm Sandhya Dirks, NPR News.
14: All right,
11: summer is slipping away, so we're going to spend the next few minutes soaking up what is left of the season with North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell. She hiked up to a pond in New York's Adirondack Mountains for one final swim.
29: We just had a bit of rain in the Adirondacks, so the trail is a little bit spongy, and there's ribbons of blue in the sky now. The sun has come out after... Couple days of storms here. I'm climbing up to a remote pond called Cooper Kiln. The forest around me is covered in big leafy green ferns and the air is buzzing with the sound of late summer. I start to sweat as the trail gets steeper. The summer air is warm against my skin, but there's enough wind to keep me cool. The breeze is so beautiful kind of sweeping through the forest in these little bursts of air. That air vibrates through the woods, picking off orange and red maple leaves and sending them floating to the ground. Autumn is already approaching the Adirondacks. Come across this beautiful little babbling brook that runs through the trail. Dax, my dog, has stopped to get a drink of water. As I climb higher, the forest around me starts to change from maple and birch trees to deeper, hardier evergreens. And then it all thins out. Yeah. Oh, this is good. (laughs) I can see the opening through the trees now. Wow. Wow. That opening reveals a bluish gray pond. It's shallow enough that the sun is streaming through the water and lighting up the big rocks and tree stumps beneath the surface. I'm alone up here, so I strip down and lower myself into the pool of mountain water.
2: Oh, my God.
29: (laughs) It is blissful. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. For NPR News, I'm Emily Russell in New York's Adirondack
10: Mountains. It's all things considered.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station and from TIAA, dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. From Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. From CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyberattacks, ransomware, and data theft, at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. 77 degrees still in the Boston area. Stellar weather to start up September. Sunshine through the evening hours with clear skies tonight, lows about 55. Tomorrow should be glorious once again. Sunny skies, light winds, temperatures about 73 degrees, so a little bit cooler. And for the start of the Labor Day weekend, sunny skies Saturday. Slightly warmer temperatures, just breaking 80 degrees. Sunday could bring a mix of clouds and sunshine, highs inching to 87. And then for Labor Day, gray. Maybe some showers in the afternoon, highs in the mid-70s. Again, 77 degrees in Boston at 459. I'm
10: executive editor for News Dan Mazzi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Flooding in Jackson, Mississippi has left the entire capital city without water to drink. Restaurants are struggling to cope with the outages. That story coming up. Also dire conditions in Pakistan. Displaced residents of one flooded town have flocked to colleges and hotels to live while they wait for the government to help them rebuild. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also coming up. California lawmakers have approved subsidies to keep a nuclear power plant operating past its scheduled shutdown in hopes of helping the state meet its climate change goals. After the lethal shooting at Robb Elementary School, some parents in Uvalde, Texas, are opting to homeschool their kids this year.
30: She has not been the same since um,
0: the shooting happened. It's like she grew up. How One Family is Educating Its Kids. These stories and the forecast and the numbers from Wall Street are on the way. It's 501.
31: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is set to deliver a primetime address in Philadelphia tonight. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the White House says Biden will use his speech to highlight the ongoing threats to American democracy.
32: With the
26: midterm elections approaching, President Biden is using this speech to lay out the stakes for the nation, though press secretary Karine Jean-Pierre insists tonight's address isn't a political speech.
33: Just because you call out what you're seeing in this current moment, uh, the extremism, the attack on our democracy, the attack on our freedom, um, the concerns that Americans have themselves doesn't mean you can't bring the country together and show a positive way forward, show some hope, give some people some hope.
32: Republicans
26: have already criticized the speech, saying that by directing criticism at elements of the Republican Party, Biden is violating his promise to be a unifying president.
31: Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The House Oversight Committee says it's reached a deal with former President Donald Trump to obtain copies of his financial records. NPR's Claudia Grisales has more on this latest turn in a years-long court battle to gain access to the documents. House
32: Oversight Chair Carolyn Maloney said the plan will allow the panel to, quote, get to the bottom of former President Trump's egregious conduct and ensure that future presidents do not abuse their position of power for personal gain. The committee reached the deal with Trump and his accounting firm to review the financial records. It follows several court victories for the committee as part of a years-long litigation fight against Trump. The committee said it first issued a subpoena for the documents in early 2019 as part of their probe into concerns of conflicts of interest, self-dealing, and foreign financial ties.
31: Claude Grisales, NPR News, Washington. A new report shows that math and reading scores for nine-year-old students fell sharply during the coronavirus pandemic. NPR's Corey Turner has more.
10: The test is called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP. It's been around for several decades. A special administration of the test was given earlier this year just to a national sample of nine-year-olds. Compared to student performance before the pandemic, the results back up what many have been saying for a while now, that millions of kids missed out on important learning during the pandemic. In reading, 9-year-olds saw the largest score drop since 1990, and in math, scores dropped for the first time in the history of the test. Maybe most worrying, lower-performing students saw the largest score drops, widening the gap between them and their top-performing peers. Corey Turner, NPR News.
0: This is NPR. This is ninety point nine WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Inspectors with the City of Boston are in neighborhoods now where college students are moving out and into apartments. It's a busy day as a majority of apartments in the city have leases that turn over September first. The city is encouraging tenants who are having problems with their landlords to call its three one one helpline. Vanessa Michelle moved her daughter out of an apartment that she says was infested with mice. She wants the city to provide more communication about ways students can protect themselves against negligent landlords.
17: The rooms are about $1,000 apiece for
4: apartments that are not in great condition.
0: Some renters say they are often at the mercy of landlords who may be unresponsive to problems. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is out with his prediction for voter turnout in this month's primary election. Today, he estimated about 24 percent of registered voters in the state will cast ballots He says already more than 7% of voters, have voted through their mail-in ballots, or in-person early voting. Galvin himself is on the ballot. Early voting ends tomorrow. Election Day is Tuesday. Local transit advocates are calling on state leaders to make a concerted effort to fix the problems at the MBTA. In its final inspection report released yesterday, the Federal Transit Administration ordered the T to address more than four dozen safety concerns. That includes issues with operation maintenance and understaffing. Jared Johnson with the advocacy group Transit Matters says state leaders need to step up to help make the changes.
5: Going forward, we can't have a legislature that talks about equity, that talks about climate change and is just leaving the T. Uh, leaving the tea to the governor and just really not, not getting engaged.
0: The tea says it's already working on a one-year plan to hire close to 2,000 new employees next year. There's an elevated fire risk in Massachusetts because of the ongoing drought conditions. The National Weather Service warns that as humidity levels drop today and winds pick up, a fire could spread rapidly. State officials have reported more than 800 wildfires in Massachusetts so far this year. Pretty lovely out there. It is dry and will stay that way overnight tonight. Chilly, though, tonight. Lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Temperatures should only reach the low to mid-70s. 77 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We are funded by you, our listeners,
16: and by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR.
10: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
16: And
34: I'm Juana Summers. One day at a time. That's how many people we've spoken to in Uvalde, Texas, are living right now. It's been a little more than three months since 21 people were killed in a mass shooting at Robb Elementary at the end of the last school year. In a few days, many families will send their kids back to Uvalde's public schools others have felt like they've had to choose between their kids' best education options and their safety. At a recent community meeting, one local organizer left parents with this message.
23: If you do not feel that your child
15: is safe going to school in the fall, then do not send them.
34: Some people in that room nodded in agreement. One of them was Tina Quintanilla Taylor. She invited me along with producers Janaki Mehta and Alejandra Marquez-Hance to her home.
24: Oh Hi. Hello.
34: Hi. Tina's six year old son Winston met us at the door and he was excited to introduce us to the family pets.
24: And we had two baby kitties and a big fat cat. <laughs> As we
34: talked, the cats, a puppy, and a big brown dog named Gypsy roamed the house, and Tina was making her way through a big stack of papers on the coffee table.
30: In fact, today I am looking at alternative schooling for Winston. It is hard um, to find because he does receive services like speech therapy and occupational therapy. So this would be something that I
34: would have to pay for. um, Tina's still deciding where to send Winston, but her decision was more clear cut for her daughter who went to rob last year. She's not going back to class in person.
24: My name's Maylee Rose Taylor. I am nine years old and I am in fourth grade.
34: And you just started school for the year, right? Yes. Tell
24: us about it. How's it going? It's going pretty good. I only started school two days.
34: Hours before the shooting last spring, Tina and Maylee had gone to a school awards ceremony. They were in the parking lot together when Rob went into lockdown. They both made it out safely. But Melee lost some friends that day, which her mom brought up during our conversation.
24: Oh, Torres, he was on my bus and he loved Pokemon. You want to show them the drawing? Sure. After the shooting, she started drawing.
30: Hmm. I'll my best.
34: It's beautiful.
24: So describe Ohelio, how was he? He was happy, a lot, and we were best friends.
34: Maile doesn't feel safe going to school in person, at least not for now. Do you think you want to go back to school in a classroom one day?
24: Mm, I don't know. Do you think it's safe for your friends
31: to go to school?
34: No. This year, Mailey is enrolled in a homeschooling program called K-12. It has a virtual component in the mornings and self-guided study for the rest of the day. What's it like trying to do school with your brother at home running around with the dogs?
24: He's normally in his room or in my mom's. Do you like your teacher? Yes. She's a really nice teacher.
34: What kind of things do you all talk about?
24: Um, we're going to be doing activities and we're talking about science.
34: Almost everyone we spoke to in Uvalde shared their concerns about school security and safety. The school district has started putting new safety measures in place, including fences around each public school, adding security cameras, and bringing 33 Texas state troopers onto school campuses. Tina Quintanilla-Taylor wants more than that. For my children to feel safe
30: and for our voices to be heard, I feel that it's, it's safe to say that we need a school and we need it now, like the day after the shooting,
34: before the shooting. Robb Elementary has been shut down since the shooting. The district plans to demolish it and build a new campus. So families in Uvalde have been left weighing whether to do some kind of at-home learning or send their kids back to classrooms
30: the only problem with the virtual learning through the school district is that we had it available during covid my children did not learn anything so they're very far behind already and then this shooting happened sounds
34: like it's really compounding for kids in this community trauma on top of trauma these lost years to COVID, and then losing their friends in a mass shooting
30: yes ma'am it's been very difficult Recovery is also painful, just trying to get back to everyday life. She has not been the same since the shooting happened. It's like she grew
34: up. You said that your son told you the other day that he wants to run away.
30: Yes. Um, So Winston told me the other day that he wanted to run away so that he could go to a different school. I mean, sometimes you feel like you want to pick up and go yourself, but where do you go? And then our roots were placed here. It's been very difficult. So yes, at the beginning of all this, we spoke about division in the community. You think we're divided now? (sighs) We're probably more divided than we've ever been.
34: Do you think that division can ever be healed?
30: No. No. So, so many families had families in leadership positions or on law enforcement positions that also lost part of their family. So um, the separation and the division is never going to be healed. There's always going to be a separation.
35: I think it's changed a lot. Yuvaldi's sad. Um, Yuvaldi's never been like this. That's Yuri DeLuna. She's homeschooling both of her sons,
34: at least for this school year.
35: Everybody has different opinions and everything, but everybody's fighting for a different reason. I feel like the situation is just
34: pushing us apart, dividing us. 12 year old Emanuel and 11 year old Eloyd went to Flores Elementary last year, so they were not at Rob when the shooting happened. But Eloyd had Irma Garcia and Eva Mireles as his fourth grade teachers when he used to attend Rob. They were the two teachers who were killed on May 24th. And Yuri says Eloyd has changed.
35: As you see, I have an air mattress. Um, he's scared of windows, so his bed's high so he won't sleep in his room. He thinks he'll get shot at. So he sleeps on the floor in the air mattress.
34: that seems to help. It has its days. Some days, Eloy covers the windows in their house with blankets.
35: I don't know why. I don't know how a blanket's gonna protect a bullet, but you know,
34: it's just whatever makes him feel comfortable. Yuri quit her job to help educate her sons. She used to manage a snow cone stand and restaurant.
35: We've always been a two income family. It was kind of rocky, and my husband decided to put other
34: applications. Luckily, he found a a better paying job. At first, Yuri had some worries about taking her sons out of the classroom. She didn't want them to miss out on social interaction, and they both have learning disabilities, so she was worried about losing individualized services at school. But now that the homeschooling program has started, she's feeling better about things. I think we can manage
35: the caseworker that Eloy had, she was amazing. She offered us extra counseling if the boys needed counseling. They opened their arms to us, you know. I feel really,
34: really good about it. After their homeschool day ended, we went into Emmanuel's room to say hi to the boys. So much people, so much people. I know, I know. I'm sorry. How are you? I'm Juana. Eloyd was sitting in the middle of his brother's bed, hunched over a laptop. Emmanuel was sitting at his desk. It's the bedroom of a true video gamer. There's a big flat screen TV in the corner, animal crossing curtains, a Super Mario bedspread. We all had some questions for them.
24: you guys get along pretty well? Uh, it depends what we, it's like, if one of us are grumpy, one of us are really hyper. What about
29: you, what
24: do you think, Emmanuel? Depends. Depends if I have a good sleep.
34: (laughs) We just wanted to talk to you a little bit about how the new school year is going. I know you're only like two days in.
13: Pretty
24: good. It's just like, it's really fun because I just talk to other people who seems nice and the teachers are really nice. We just do really fun activities. Do you like this better than going to school in the classroom so far? Yeah, because there's no lockdowns in... and I really like it because um you could be in your room and no, so
1: you could actually choose what you want to eat. Mom's food is better than school food, I imagine? Yes. <laughs>
14: Very much
34: so. <laughs> what are you most looking forward to this year?
14: Um
24: Learning to science, basically, uh, making little explosions.
34: <laughs> Yuri said that even though the homeschool program has been supportive, she wants this to be temporary. I honestly want them to go back. I want them to be
35: social. I want them to experience everything I had, you know. Are there
34: things that you would want to see or hear from the school district that would make you feel more confident in their abilities to educate your kids well and to keep them safe while they're at school.
35: Right now at this moment, nothing they say would help anything, it's actions. They need to do what they what needs to be done and
34: protect our kids. Back at the Quintanilla Taylor house, oh, Tina's that. having similar conversations with her daughter, Maylee.
30: What do you want to do, Maylee? What changes do you want to make to keep the rest of your friends safe?
24: To like, make the school safer with more protection. And fences were where nobody could climb them. They have barbed wire, and then doors would automatically close.
34: For now, Yuri and Tina's biggest hopes for their kids are simple. A safe and comfortable school year with moments of Uh, fun and normalcy.
30: Maylee, was that you?
34: Wherever possible.
30: No, I think that's your brother. Can you please ask him to turn that down? Thank you, ma'am.
34: Tomorrow, we'll hear from one teacher in Uvalde who is returning to the classroom this year after surviving the shooting.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Still ahead on All Things Considered, how the Student Health Center at Oberlin College temporarily became the center of a maelstrom over the issue of access to contraception. On Wall Street today, the Dow and S&P began the month of September by snapping a four-day losing streak. The Dow rose nearly a half percent, 146 points, to close at 31,656. S&P gained three-tenths of a percent to close at 39.67. The Nasdaq dipped a quarter of a percent to end the day at 11,785. Danish pharmaceutical giant Novo Nordisk will acquire a Watertown biotech firm. Novo Nordisk announced today it will purchase Forma Therapeutics for $1.1 billion dollars. former specializes in rare blood illnesses and is working on medication for sickle cell disease. It's 519.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com.
0: Tonight, President Biden will deliver an address to the nation. The topic is democracy. The White House is calling the president's remarks a primetime speech on the continued battle for the soul of the nation. We'll have live coverage and analysis from NPR News. It starts at 8 tonight on WBUR and at WBUR.org. Pretty nice tonight, clear skies, a crescent moon down around the mid-50s. And then for tomorrow, sunshine comes back, should have highs tomorrow in the lower 70s, so a bit on the cooler side. On Saturday, sunshine again, about 81 degrees. Some clouds moving in along with some sunshine on Sunday, could reach 87 degrees, then a cloudy day ahead for Labor
6: Day Monday. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone, betterhelp.com public. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
6: And I'm Elsa Chang.
11: Catholic hospitals and clinics have long been a mainstay of healthcare throughout the United States. But but that Catholic affiliation comes with ethical and religious directives that can keep doctors from offering a range of contraception including birth control pills and IUDs. And these rules can impact lots of women in lots of places. This week, for example, the students at Oberlin College in Ohio learned that their healthcare choices including access to contraception could also now be affected by religious directives here to tell us more is NPR health correspondent maria Godoy. hey maria hey elsa so what's going on at oberlin Well,
36: like a lot of colleges, Oberlin has a student health center. They decided to outsource the management of it to a subsidiary of a large Catholic healthcare system called Bon Secours. Then on Sunday, a local news outlet reported that under Bon Secours, students would no longer be able to get contraception for the sole purpose of preventing pregnancy. And emergency contraception would only be given to victims of
11: sexual assault. Wow. And this is because of ethical and religious directives, right? Yep, that's right. So how did students react to this news? I spoke with Remsen Welsh. She's a
36: fourth-year student at Oberlin, and she says people were upset at the news. I would characterize the students' reaction as outrage.
3: A lot of people
36: in my circles were sitting around being like, what is happening?
11: Okay, well, how did Oberlin respond to all of this outrage?
36: Oberlin says they were previously told that this wouldn't happen. They said they only recently learned that their Catholic health partner wasn't going to offer these services. So Oberlin has now partnered with a local family planning clinic to offer reproductive health services on campus a few days a week. But the Catholic provider will still run the student health center. I reached out to Bon Secours for comment, but they referred me to Oberlin's statements.
11: Well, let me ask you, is it common for Catholic health systems to run
36: student health centers? Colleges have been outsourcing student health services for a while, but the bigger trend here is consolidation. Catholic health systems, like other health systems, have bought up urgent care clinics, physicians groups, surgery centers, and they run clinics for other institutions like at Oberlin. Marian Jarlensky is a health policy researcher at the University of Pittsburgh. She says the wide reach of Catholic health care is making it harder for lots of women to get contraception.
6: After all this
34: consolidation this is where it shakes out where we've got about 40 percent of reproductive age women living in areas with high or dominant um, Catholic hospital market share.
36: I also spoke with Lois Utley of Community Catalyst, a health advocacy group. She's been tracking Catholic health systems for years, and she says they don't typically publicize these restrictions. They are not open and transparent
2: about it at all. We think it's only fair that a patient be warned ahead of time about what she may or may not be able to get at the local
36: doctor's office, urgent care center, or hospital. And think about it. Now that abortion is severely limited or even banned in many places, there's more attention on access to reliable contraception. So knowing about these religious restrictions really matters. And we're not just talking about birth control pills. We're talking about tubal ligation, vasectomies, IUDs.
11: Well, how strictly do you think these directives are enforced day to day, like in practice?
36: Studies have found that many doctors who work for Catholic-owned or affiliated hospitals often use a workaround. So for instance, the Catholic directives don't allow contraception just to prevent a pregnancy, but they do allow it to treat a medical condition. So a doctor might use a workaround and give a patient an IUD and say it's for quote unquote heavy bleeding. Or doctors that aren't allowed to tie a woman's tubes might remove them altogether instead. They'll just say it's to lower her risk of ovarian cancer. One doctor I spoke with, Dr. Corinne McLeod, told me these kinds of workarounds were pretty common when she worked at a Catholic hospital in Albany, New York.
18: Everybody knew what was happening. It was That was just the way they got around it.
11: Okay, well then, if these workarounds exist, are women's contraception choices really being limited all that much? Well, yeah, because they may not be able to get the kind of
36: contraception that works better for them. For instance, research shows it's harder to get a copper IUD from a Catholic-owned clinic, and that's probably because it's really only used to prevent pregnancy. I spoke with Deborah Stolberg. She's with the University of Chicago. She's done a lot of research on this topic, and she says in some cases, patients may simply be able to go to a different non-Catholic provider to get what they want, but not always.
26: In some cases, women truly have no other choices. This hospital or this system is the only provider in town.
36: And here's another interesting thing I learned. Mm -hmm. Even when a Catholic hospital is sold off to a non-Catholic institution, the religious directives may have to stay in place as part of the sales contract.
11: That is NPR's Maria Godoy. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you.
10: As the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, heads into its fourth day, some restaurants have shut down. Others say they are struggling to stay open as their costs skyrocket. As Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Maya Miller reports, restaurants were already suffering from the city's water woes before this latest calamity.
33: Soleil Coffee and Bubble Tea is in Jackson's Historic Arts District. Inside, the design is minimalist, with clean lines and work from Black artists on the walls. Ezra Brown opened Soleil about a month ago. Even in that short time, he's grown tired of Jackson's
5: water problems. 85 to 90% of our drinks in this area are iced.
33: When Soleil opened, the city was already under a boil water notice due to potentially contaminated water.
5: If you've got a boil alert, so we actually have to get our ice from another city because we're rolling through 100-plus pounds of ice every single day. 100-plus pounds of ice and not including the water. So if you want a lemonade, if you want a green tea, you want all this kind of stuff, that's all bottled water that we have to have.
33: Dozens of Jackson restaurant owners wrote a letter to Mississippi's governor and Jackson's mayor even before this current crisis. They said these repeated boil water orders and outages were costing them hundreds of dollars a day. And now they say it's even worse since the water treatment plant failed earlier this week. Pat Fontaine heads Mississippi Hospitality and Restaurant Association. He says restaurants in Jackson are losing customers.
22: There's, you know, some fear uh, of the water supply uh, not being fit for consumption. So they choose to go to uh, outlying uh,
15: cities that, that uh, do not have uh, the boil water notice.
33: And don't have porta-potties. Some Jackson restaurants have had to rent them since their toilets won't flush because of the low water pressure. Jackson's mayor estimates it'll cost a billion dollars to fix the city's water system. In the meantime, it's still not clear when the water will be safe enough to drink. Ezra Brown says he's doing all he can to make his new cafe successful, but he needs the city and state to do their part.
5: Now I need y'all to do your job. Give me clean water.
33: While Brown waits for that clean tap water, about 600 members of the National Guard are working with the city to pass out bottled water to some 180,000 residents. For NPR News, I'm Maya Miller.
0: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A number of Republican candidates are amending their positions on abortion ahead of this fall's midterm elections. That story is coming up on All Things Considered. And coming up on Marketplace this evening, Boston's not the only city with public transportation woes of various kinds. Nationally, ridership on public transit is down 40 percent from the before times. But in Seattle, key public transit investments may have helped ridership recover a lot faster than the rest of the country. Well, I have an orca card from work, and it pays for me to go to work. Uh, I don't want a lot of gas mileage on my, my car, and I have road rates sometimes. The state of Seattle's public transit coming up tonight on Marketplace. The Rangers ride into town for a four-game weekend series with the Red Sox. Rich Hill pitches for the Sox tonight. Glenn Otto for Texas. 7:10 start time.
16: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm, committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. More at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. This weekend, Chileans vote on a new constitution. The current one was written during one of the country's darkest periods.
18: 32 years after the the end of the Pinochet regime in 1990, we still have that constitution, so it's very much uh, due a constitutional change
16: what rights do the people of chile want today That story tomorrow on morning edition from npr news
27: tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 wbur boston's npr news station
22: live from npr news in culver city california i'm dwayne brown as efforts to restore water in Jackson, Mississippi continue, state officials have set up emergency distribution centers for bottled water and hand sanitizer. Jackson residents were already under a boil water order before flooding from the Pearl River, knocked out one of the city's two water treatment plants. The water crisis affects more than 160,000 residents, as well as those who come into the capital to work. Here's Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, who declared a state of emergency earlier in the week
15: to everyone in the city. I know that you're dealing with a profoundly unfair situation. It's frustrating, it's wrong, and it needs to be fixed.
22: Several hundred National Guard troops have been called in to assist. This is the third time in a dozen years Jackson residents have been impacted by a decaying water system. U.S. chipmaker NVIDIA says the government has ordered the company to stop selling some of its most advanced semiconductor chips to China, And Pierre's Emily Fang tells us that could cripple China's artificial intelligence sector as well as the company.
33: NVIDIA says in the securities
28: filing, the U.S. government is banning the export of A100 and H100 chips to China, the top of the line for anyone working in image processing, which relies on artificial intelligence. The company said about $400 million worth of chips it normally sells to China could be affected, and that the U.S. export ban might hinder the final development of the H100 chip, which customers have already pre-ordered. The U.S. has instituted export bans for Chinese firms, including Huawei, for some of the most advanced semiconductor equipment and software, arguing they could end up in military use. China is heavily reliant on foreign chip technology, but the bans have also accelerated China's own investment in its
0: technology. Emily Fang, and NPR News.
22: Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Early voting for next Tuesday's Massachusetts primary ends tomorrow. To date, the state's chief election officer predicted turnout for the election will come up short of the record set two years ago. WBR's Vanessa Ocheville explains.
7: Secretary of State Bill Galvin says two things drove record turnout in 2020. Mail-in voting during the pandemic and intense U.S. Senate and congressional races.
8: You don't have any of that this time. But I still think it's going to be going up. It's accelerating. You have these intense contests on both sides. And I think that's going to bring out a pretty good vote.
7: Galvin says voters who are not affiliated with either party have requested more than 50% of the mail-in ballots. 22% of the independents want to vote in the Republican primary. Galvin says unenrolled voters want to have a say in the GOP gubernatorial race between Jeff Deal and Chris Doty. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio.
0: There will soon be more alternative transportation options for the remainder of the Orange Line shutdown. The MBTA in Keolis announced today the commuter rail will make more stops every day at the Forest Hill Station in Jamaica Plain. The change is in anticipation of increased ridership after Labor Day. The new schedule starts Saturday and runs through the end of the Orange Line shutdown. Vice President Kamala Harris is going to be in Boston Labor Day Monday. The White House said today she's going to be celebrating the holiday with labor leaders and other advocates. She'll attend the annual Labor Day breakfast in the city with elected leaders from around the state. The rain that we've had over the last week has not put much of a dent in our drought. The U.S. Drought Monitor finds 38 percent of the state is under extreme drought conditions. That's down just one percentage point from a week ago. Those extreme drought conditions cover all of the immediate Boston area, Cape Ann, and parts of the south coast. The forecast is coming up.
27: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity
0: Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Clear skies tonight, a crescent moon, temperatures in the mid-50s, and then the sunshine should return tomorrow and Saturday, too. Tomorrow's highs in the low 70s, and then 81 degrees on Saturday. Sunday should be partly sunny, a few clouds around highs about 87.
6: Lots of clouds ahead for Labor Day Monday. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI. To help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health. Containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Advisors to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention today are debating whether to endorse the first updated versions of the COVID-19 vaccines. It's a crucial step towards making the new shots available starting later this week. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. Hey, Rob. Hey, Ari. The Food and Drug Administration authorized the new boosters just yesterday. You were here talking with us about that. CDC advisors are now getting ready to vote. What are they saying?
25: Yeah, they've been debating the pros and cons of these updated vaccines all day. And just to remind everyone, the boosters we're talking about are new versions of the Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech vaccines that have been reformulated to protect people against the original strain of the virus and, for the first time, the Omicron subvariants known as BA4 and 5. That's what most people are catching now. The CDC advisors were tasked with deciding whether to back the FDA's decision to authorize the new Pfizer BioNTech booster for anyone 12 and older and the Moderna vaccine for anyone 18 and older. People would have to wait at least two months after their last shot. And some experts say people really should wait at least four months since their, since their last shot or their last infection or the new shots just won't work very well.
10: Why are these new boosters being considered?
25: You know, it may feel like the pandemic's kind of ending, but, you know, hundreds of people are still dying every day. And yet another surge could hit this fall and winter when lots of people are vulnerable because the immunity they got from their shots or infections has faded. Officials hope these new boosters will help prevent thousands of hospitalizations and deaths and allow life to continue to return to normal.
10: That's what they hope. Is there data on
25: how well the boosters work? You know, that's the big question. For the first time, the FDA authorized these vaccines without requiring that they get tested in people. To try to keep up with the rapidly evolving virus, the FDA relied on how well the shots stimulated the immune systems of mice and how the shots targeted at earlier variants looked when they looked like they work in people. Now, you know, no one doubts the shots are safe, and federal officials argue the totality of the evidence makes them feel confident the new Omicron boosters will cut the chances people will catch the virus and spread it and end up with COVID or long COVID.
10: That sounds promising, but without testing in humans, I imagine some are skeptical.
25: Yeah, that's right. You know, some experts are skeptical and wonder if it would be better to wait for the human studies that are already underway. Here's how Dr. Pablo Sanchez put it uh, at today's hearing. He's at Ohio State University. I'm just, you know, struggling with a recommendation. I understand that we need better vaccines to make a recommendation for a vaccine that has not been studied in humans. I'm just very, I just want to bring that up as a a concern. But you know, our other advisors are more comfortable with starting to treat the COVID vaccines more like flu vaccines, which are updated every year without testing them in people. Here's Dr. Uh, Jamie Lur from uh, Cayuga Family Medicine.
8: This is the future that we're heading for, which is we're going to have more variants And we should be treating this like the flu, where we can use new strain variants every year. So after thinking about it, I am comfortable, even though we don't have human data and just animal data, of supporting the B4-5 variants booster.
10: So I mentioned that if the shots get endorsed, they could be available later this week. It's already Thursday. That doesn't leave a lot of time.
25: Yeah, but, you know, they could start to become available on a very limited basis, starting as soon as tomorrow, and then really start to become widely available next week. But, you know, Ari, a key question is how much of a demand there will be for these new updated boosters.
10: Okay. That's NPR's Rob Stein. Thank you.
25: You bet, Ari, anytime.
11: Weeks of unprecedented monsoon rains have left a third of Pakistan underwater, and that has left around half a million people homeless. In the northern town of Nashera, authorities have hastily converted 25 colleges and boarding houses into shelters, and Pierres Dia Hadid
32: paid a visit.
19: We've come to a technical college that has been converted into a camp for Pakistanis who've been displaced uh, by these floods. There are dozens of people crowded in front of one tiny window. They're trying to get the attention of government official Zahra Ali Khan and his aides, who were ensconced in an admin office that transformed into camp headquarters. We reach them by scrambling through a smashed window. One volunteer is stressed.
8: We have to deal with such kind of people. Look,
19: they're desperate. You're doing your best. These are all people trying to register now, yeah? Uh,
27: first we registered them yeah. and then uh, give them the packages.
19: They get a mat to sit on. The government official Khan says they've registered 500 families in just three days. As he speaks, the man furiously jots down the details of new families. He can't work fast enough people keep arriving, including one family who clip-clop in on their donkey cart. Crowds smush around an open-backed jeep where a man hands out plastic bags filled with cooked rice. The jeep slowly trundles about the sprawling college complex. People bang on the side of the vehicle. They jog to keep up elderly people fall behind, a man and a woman fight over a bag of rice and it tears open. One woman, Zabeda Begum, scolds a jeep driver for causing chaos and for leaving women behind. I want to ensure that women and girls getting food it's hard for women here. In this conservative area, it's frowned on for women to be in public, let alone press for their needs. And many can't even read or write. Like Mobina, she works as a cleaner. Her 10-year-old son labours in a carpentry workshop. Her heart was washed away over the weekend. It was so fast, Mobina collected the kids, their ID cards and scrammed. Her husband, who she says is an abusive drug addict, saved himself.
26: He ran
19: off. He didn't even turn his neck around to see what happened to us. Mubina is now staying in a tent with two other women and their children. It's a tarp hoisted up by a pole, and there's even a shortage of those across Pakistan because the floods have been so devastating. Her life right now is a grab bag of uncertainties. She doesn't know when she and her children will eat next. She doesn't know when they can use the toilet. Mobina says there's only one toilet for females and it's sometimes locked, so they're always holding it in. Her friend Layla, a 31-year-old mother of three, leans in and says, we don't have period pads either. She says, we're using our scarves. Mubina and the other women say they don't know when they can leave the camp. If the government doesn't give them money, they can't rebuild. I ask them, are they worried that there'll be another flood? The women shrug. They've never heard of the climate change that is making these floods more frequent and more intense. They've also done very little to contribute to it. These women don't have cars, they rarely eat meat, and when I ask if they've ever been on an aeroplane, Another woman in the tent, Nazia, bursts out laughing. I've never been on a plane and I've never even seen an airport. She says she can't imagine how those things could cause her house to flood. She says this has to be an act of God and maybe God will help them now. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Norshera. You're listening
11: to All Things Considered from NPR News. California lawmakers today approved a big subsidy to keep the state's last nuclear power plant operating. The Diablo Canyon plant on the central coast between San Francisco and Los Angeles was scheduled to close by 2025. Benjamin Perper of member station KCBX in San Luis Obispo is less than 20 miles from the plant and joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so tell us more about what lawmakers in Sacramento approved today.
23: Yeah, the state legislature approved a loan of up to $1.4 billion to the plant's operator, utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, to keep the plant open another five years. That loan can be forgiven in the future, so this is likely more a subsidy than a loan. Governor Gavin Newsom proposed the extension, saying the plant's carbon-free energy supply is worth the cost. This loan will help PG&E make upgrades needed to keep the plant operating. The money could also go to things like licensing and maintenance. The push here happened in part because California has these ambitious climate change goals of reaching 100% carbon-free energy by 2045. Diablo Canyon accounts for about 9% of the state's electricity portfolio and a higher share of its carbon-free energy Newsom, some environmental groups and nuclear advocates say closing the plant in the next few years is just way too soon if the state wants to reach that goal.
11: OK, well, walk us through some of the history here, Benjamin, because nuclear power, it's controversial. And the trend in California as well as across the country is that these plants are shutting down, right?
23: Yeah, well, the Diablo Canyon plant was controversial from the start. It was the focus of fierce opposition and protest during its construction and that started in the late 1960s. PG&E struggled to show the plant was earthquake-proof, especially after a new fault was discovered several miles offshore, eventually though regulators approved it. Still, on top of that, there are traditional concerns about nuclear power, like where to store uh, spent fuel. The country still doesn't have a permanent storage facility built, so nuclear waste is in temporary storage near power plants around the country.
11: Well, how are people who oppose relying on nuclear energy responding to the prospect of Diablo Canyon staying open for an extra five years?
23: Well, they are still really concerned about safety and the potential for a major disaster here. (laughs) The plant sits right by the ocean and near several towns. Edwin Lyman is Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He believes there is a real risk of a major accident from an earthquake, tsunami, or even a terrorist attack.
22: Although
20: the industry has tried to downplay those concerns, a serious radiological release at Diablo Canyon could have wide-ranging public health and environmental impacts.
23: PG&E, though, maintains that the plant has a long record of safe operation going back to its construction. And pro-Diablo groups point to what they call the strict oversight from the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And besides safety, renewable energy advocates uh, argued that instead of propping up an old nuclear plant, the state should build more wind and solar power faster to reach that carbon-free energy goal.
11: Well, what happens now that the legislature approved this money?
23: Yeah, Governor Newsom is expected to sign off on the five-year extension, and then the state can grant PG&E the loan. It's forgivable, so the utility could return the money if federal funds to keep the plant open come through. The plant will have to go through the federal relicensing process, and there are some pretty major problems to figure out, but for now, it looks like the plant is going to keep running until 2030.
11: That is Benjamin Perper of KCBX. Thank you, Benjamin.
23: Thank you.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR
0: News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a number of Republican candidates are amending their positions on abortion ahead of this fall's midterm elections. That story is still ahead. Work is going to be suspended this weekend on the Sumner Tunnel in an effort to keep traffic moving through the holiday weekend. The tunnel between East Boston and downtown Boston is undergoing renovations. And because of that work, the roadway is closed on most weekends except for holidays. That includes this holiday again. The Sumner Tunnel will be open this holiday weekend. In sports, Texas Rangers meet the Red Sox at Fenway Park tonight for the first game in their four-game set. First pitch by Rich Hill is at 7-10. Glenn Otto pitches for the Rangers. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast clear skies overnight tonight should be beautiful. Lows about 55. Tomorrow, sunny once again, light winds, a little bit cooler, highs about 73 degrees. In the Boston area now, sunny skies, 77 degrees. It's 549.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today. And with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. There was a transformation which also translated into, you know, an almost worshipful popularity for Gorbachev. He was this incredible figure who had emerged from a system which wasn't supposed to produce people like that, who had given it kind of energy and light Almost overnight.
11: I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight
9: at 8
17: on WBUR.
11: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. It was a wild ride today as a team of nuclear inspectors from the United Nations made their way to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in southern Ukraine. The team was able to reach and gain access to the plant, and they have begun their work to assess its safety. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny is in Dnipro, Ukraine. Hey, Alyssa. Hi, Ari. Sounds like it was a really intense journey for the inspectors to get there. Tell us what they went through.
26: Well, yeah, it certainly had the world on the edge of their seats. So to get there, they had to pass through active fighting. They came from the city of Zaporizhia, which is still Ukrainian controlled, but they had to go through the gray zone. That's where the two sides meet each other. And then they had to enter Russian-held territory. There were some really long delays at checkpoints. There was heavy shelling along the way. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, who's leading this team, he said that he was briefed on the military situation, but he felt the mission must proceed because the stakes of a nuclear disaster were just too high to wait.
10: And despite the shelling, despite the checkpoint delays, they made it, so what do we know about the visit?
26: Yeah, the, the weeks in the making visit finally happened. So Grossi said he was able to gather a lot of information. He saw the main things he needed to see.
8: I have just completed a first tour of the key areas that we wanted to see.
23: Of course, there
8: is uh, a lot more uh, to do.
26: He said his team plans to continue working past this initial visit.
10: Any information on operations at the plant?
26: Well, because of shelling again today, the plant had some damage. So there was a power supply line that went down. Workers had to shut down one of the reactors. Another idle reactor lost power and had to be switched to a generator. That's all according to Energo Autumn, which is the organization tasked with nuclear safety in Ukraine. The head of that organization said they are using all efforts to get that reactor back online.
10: What's Moscow saying about all this?
26: Moscow's been supportive of the mission. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, had this to say. He's saying we're doing everything we can for the nuclear station to function and the inspectors to arrive. But Russia continues to blame the shelling in and around the plant on Ukraine, claiming that they're sabotaging the visit. On Twitter, the deputy Russian ambassador to the UN said Russia had requested a meeting next week of the UN Security Council to discuss the situation at the plant and Ukraine's, quote, reckless behavior.
10: Okay, so Russia blames Ukraine for the shelling, but what does Ukraine say about that?
26: Ukrainian officials say it's Russia who's doing the shelling, and today, NPR had a chance to talk with Dmitry Orlov. He is the mayor of Enerhodar, which is the city that's closest to the plant.
0: Well,
26: the video, uh... He says, you can tell the shelling is coming from nearby Russian occupied territory because the time between hearing the shot and hearing the resulting explosion is just a few
10: seconds. All right, well, what's next in this saga?
26: Well, the IAEA mission is expected to be ongoing over the next few days. The main team has departed the plant tonight, but a few members are going to stay behind to continue working. Grossi, he has said, you know, he wants to keep a contingent of inspectors at the plant permanently. But it's still unclear exactly how that's going to look.
10: That's NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reporting from Ukraine. Thanks a lot.
26: You bet.
11: Abortion rights supporters have gotten some encouraging signs since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Voter registration data and recent election results suggest that women and young voters are especially fired up. And as a result, NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reports that some Republicans are changing how they talk about abortion.
32: About a week ago, Arizona Republican Senate candidate Blake Masters tweeted an ad featuring him playing with his kids.
10: Look, I support a ban on very late term and partial birth abortion. And most Americans agree with that. That would just put us on par with other
20: civilized nations. That's a different
32: tone than Masters took on abortion in March when he spoke to Catholic news outlet EWTN.
20: Every society uh, has had child
12: sacrifice or has had human sacrifice in some form and this is our form, and it
23: needs to stop."
32: This discrepancy was highlighted when NBC News reported that his website had also changed. It no longer, for example, characterizes Masters as 100% pro-life. That shift is part of a broader trend of GOP candidates changing how they, and their websites, talk about abortion since the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case. In March, Minnesota Republican gubernatorial candidate Scott Jensen told Minnesota Public Radio his position.
17: I would try to ban abortion. I think that we're we're basically in a situation where we should be governed by pro-life. There is no reason for us to be having abortions going on.
32: But in an August interview with NPR, he said he supports exceptions for rape and incest. And he added this.
17: If a pregnant woman's mental or physical health is endangered, then this is no longer any kind of a situation
9: for the legal system.
32: Tressa Undem is a pollster who has worked heavily on abortion and to her these changes make sense as a majority of Americans oppose total or near total bans on the procedure. Post Dobbs where I see sort of the biggest shifts is the potential and turnout for independent women and Democratic voters and young voters who are all looking to be more mobilized by this issue. Marjorie Dannenfelser is president of SBA Pro Life America, which opposes abortion rights. She says changes in rhetoric from candidates like Masters don't mean their actual views have changed. I do not see this as a change of position at all. I've talked to him extensively um, back and forth on this um, before and now. Um, the position that he stated before is the one shared by the whole pro-life movement, and that is, of course, to end abortion. To her, the path is to tighten laws over time. We have partial victories along the way, and we're very clear about where we want to end up. Blake Masters is a great example. He is very clear about what his personal position is, but he's also
19: clear about what's achievable.
32: Abortion rights supporters and opponents agree that candidates' statements, not views, are changing. Where these groups differ is on why.
19: It's not that complicated what they're trying to do, and it's not that clever, it's just they don't want voters to understand what the the end goal is.
32: Christina Reynolds is Vice President of Communications at EMILY's List, which supports Democratic, pro-abortion rights women candidates.
19: What we see is that voters don't like the Supreme Court decision. They think the Republicans have gone way too far
32: and they believe
19: that this is a right and a freedom that they should have.
32: Republican candidates have in some cases removed abortion from their websites altogether. Colorado congressional candidate Barbara Kirkmeyer has in recent months done so, along with removing a number of other topics. Her position on abortion is clear. In a July interview with a Colorado Fox affiliate, she said she opposes it, except to save a pregnant person's life. I have said for years that I'm 100% um, pro-life, and I remain that way. But again, the issues that are facing this district that my opponent is so out of out of touch with has to do with the inflation. And that's one more tactic many Republicans may take on abortion as the midterms approach: try to talk about something else. Danielle Kurtzleben and PR News.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
6: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife will do whatever it takes to save their congregation. In theaters and streaming on Peacock tomorrow. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, a lovely evening. Clear skies overnight tonight, lows about 55. Tomorrow should be pretty beautiful once again. Sunny skies, light winds, a little bit cooler, about 73 degrees. Then for the start of the Labor Day weekend, sunny skies on Saturday, slightly warmer temperatures, just breaking 80 degrees. Sunday should bring a mix of clouds and sunshine, highs inching to 87, and then gray for Labor Day, maybe some showers with highs in the mid-70s. Texas Rangers meet the Red Sox at way park tonight for the first game in their four game set first pitch tonight by Rich Hillis at 710 Glenn Otto pitches for the Rangers it's 559 I'm senior business
30: reporter Zininjor Enweka and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston 92.7 WBUA tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org wbur Boston's NPR news station
0: President Biden is set to deliver a primetime speech on the fight for what he calls the soul of the nation. Tonight, he's expected to single out MAGA Republicans and election victory deniers. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, the 1st of September. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. Children around the nation are about to wrap up their first week of school. We'll check in with educators and mental health providers looking out for kids who are struggling emotionally due to the pandemic.
8: We had a lot of kids with elevated levels of anxiety and stress, kids who are fearful coming to school.
0: And a newly released report by the National Science Foundation shows that sexual harassment is a serious problem for women who are stationed in research facilities in Antarctica these stories. And the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's one past six.
31: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is preparing for a major speech tonight about the future of the nation's democracy. NPR's Lakshmi Singh reports Biden is delivering the address in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, just two months ahead of the midterm elections.
2: President Biden characterizes the general election in November as part of a broader battle for the soul of the nation. Against the backdrop of Independence Hall, he's expected to use this primetime speech to spur Americans to shield U.S. democracy from the rising threat of extremism. And White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Biden will again call out extremist Trump supporters who continue to deny that the outcome of the 2020 election was legitimate.
33: They are threatening political violence and they are attacking our democracy. And so the president is gonna take this time to talk to the American people who majority agree with him on.
2: Biden's travel schedule is expected to get even busier in the weeks leading up to the midterm elections. Lakshmi Singh, NPR News.
31: A federal judge is delaying her ruling on former president Donald Trump's request for a special master in the investigation into the classified documents that were removed from his Florida estate. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the judge now says she will enter a written order at some point.
26: U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon said over the weekend that she was inclined to grant Trump's request for a special master. But now there's no indication from the judge on when her decision will come. The U.S. Department of Justice had argued in a filing this week that appointing a special master is unnecessary and could be harmful to national security. The department also raised questions and suggested Trump may have obstructed justice by concealing or removing some of the documents that federal authorities were looking for when they searched. Trump's lawyers have downplayed the Justice Department's concerns and said there was, quote, no cause for alarm. Deepa Shivaram,
31: NPR News. Residents in Jackson, Mississippi, are being urged to take precautions amid a citywide water crisis. Officials have been working to restore access to clean drinking water after a treatment plant failed earlier this week. Nushambi Lambright, the executive director of One Voice Mississippi, says problems at the aging facility date back years.
3: People are, are very angry that the situation has not been addressed. You know, we were promised that, you know, with the federal funding that um, was coming down that, you know, this was finally, you know, going to be addressed.
31: The director of FEMA is expected to arrive in Jackson on Friday to help coordinate ongoing efforts to supply residents with clean water and to get the treatment plant back up and running.
0: You're listening to NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. A new analysis from UMass Amherst shows the Northeast is warming at the fastest rate of any region in the country. Worcester, Providence, and Hartford had their warmest August on record. Boston had its third warmest. Michael Rollins is associate director of the Climate System Research Center at UMass Amherst. He says the region is dangerously close to what he calls a worrisome level of warming. The
8: combination of factors in both the atmosphere, the land surface, and the Western Atlantic Ocean
0: may be contributing to this faster warming we're seeing across the Northeast US. Rollins says a lack of snow in the winter is one reason for more days of intense heat in the summer. Businesses appear to have a high interest in offering sports betting in Massachusetts. The State Gaming Commission today said that 42 companies have announced they plan to apply for a sports betting license. There will be 17 licenses available. The commission is still determining the process for considering the applications and regulating the new industry. Last month, Governor Charlie Baker signed a bill that legalizes sports betting in the state. Former President Donald Trump is set to campaign for Massachusetts Republican gubernatorial candidate Jeff Deal by telephone. He'll join the former state rep in a pre-primary tele-rally Monday evening to get out the vote. Deal is facing Chris Doty in the Republican primary. The winner is expected to face Democratic Attorney General Maura Healey in November. And the Rainham man who began the organization Operation Flags for Vets has been laid to rest. Paul Monty's funeral was held today. His son, Army Sergeant Jared Monty, died in 2006 in Afghanistan. Paul Monty began the organization that places flags on military graves because the cemetery where his son is buried did not do so at the time. Reporter Alex Ashlock was at the services today.
8: Governor Charlie Baker called Monty a warrior for veterans and their families. A long procession took Monty's body to the National Cemetery on Cape Cod, led by or including Jared Monty's truck, the truck Paul used to drive.
20: Paul Monty's being buried near his son Jared at the National Cemetery in
0: Bourne. That's Alex Ashlock. Paul Monty died last week. He was 76 years old. His story inspired the hit Lee Bryce country song, I Drive Your Truck. Sure is nice out there right now. Clear tonight, chilly, lows in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Temperature should reach the low to mid-70s. 75 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert
27: Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
11: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden is heading to Pennsylvania tonight, where he will give a rare primetime speech on what the White House calls the battle for the soul of the nation. The speech in downtown Philadelphia is about threats to democracy. It's a return to a message that Biden used in his 2020 campaign. And Biden is expected again to take sharp aim at Republicans tonight. Here to talk about all of this is NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hey, Franco. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what else can you tell us about what to expect from the president's speech tonight?
12: Well, Karine Jean-Pierre, Biden's press secretary, told us to expect the president to speak about how he sees Republican followers of former President Donald Trump as a threat to democracy. Biden says they don't respect the rule of law and that they have refused to accept the results of the election. He calls them MAGA Republicans and says they support a kind of semi-fascism. The president has been more aggressively taking on Republicans in recent weeks, you know, as he did in Maryland last week.
8: They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace, embrace political violence. They don't believe in democracy.
12: You know, it's really quite a shift from his earlier efforts to find compromise with Republicans over the course of much of his first year.
11: I mean, but this message, it isn't a new area for him, right? Like, why is he giving this speech now? Is he basically, I don't know, just campaigning for the midterms?
12: You know, Biden has cited recent events as an example of why fighting for democracy is more important than ever. You know, he's pointed to the suppression of voting rights and threats to abortion and reproductive health care, for example. You know, the White House says this is not political, but I mean, of course, the midterms are just around the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked with uh, Doug Sosnick. He was a former advisor to President Bill Clinton. You know, he says Biden was struggling, uh, but really changed his momentum recently. He was teetering
13: on getting to that point where people just weren't going to pay attention to him
12: and they tuned him out. You know, that new momentum has come from his legislative wins and concerns about the abortion ruling in the Supreme Court, as well as the ongoing coverage of Trump's legal problems. And Sostek says people are now more willing to listen, especially independent voters. You know, he specifically cited new polling that shows independents have moved more into the Democrats camp before the midterm elections. Hmm.
13: In a a world that's increasingly become bifurcated, I mean, to the extent there's 30 percent of the people out there who are, you know, who are
12: open, you know, to
13: persuasion.
12: You know, and he said those are the people who are now probably more willing and interested to hear what the president has to say tonight. And that's part of the reason why Biden is giving this primetime address. Well,
11: President Biden's second stop in Pennsylvania, this is his second stop in Pennsylvania in like three days. Right. And he's going back there again over the long weekend. Can you just explain why there's so much focus on Pennsylvania in particular?
12: You know, Biden is from Scranton and Pennsylvania is where he launched his 2020 campaign. And this week has been kind of a kickoff for Biden, who promises to do more campaigning before the midterms. And Pennsylvania is an incredibly important state in those upcoming races. You know, it has competitive House races and a gubernatorial contest and a key Senate race that could help determine control of the Senate. So there's a lot riding on this period. That is NPR White
11: House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you, Franco.
12: Thank you, Elsa. In many
10: parts of the country, kids are about to wrap up their first week of school, and teachers are happy to have them back for what they hope is a relatively COVID free school year. But there's one more thing educators and healthcare providers are preparing for another wave of kids struggling with their mental health. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports.
4: To understand why educators and healthcare providers are concerned about kids' mental health, we have to step back to this time last year. WHEN STUDENTS CAME BACK INTO CLASSROOMS, MANY FOR THE FIRST TIME SINCE SPRING OF 2020,
8: AND EDUCATORS WERE THRILLED. WE WERE VERY EXCITED BECAUSE WE WERE GOING TO HAVE ALL OUR KIDS BACK.
4: BOB Mullaney IS SUPERINTENDENT OF Millis PUBLIC SCHOOLS IN MASSACHUSETTS. BUT HE SAYS THE LAST SCHOOL YEAR TURNED OUT TO BE A TOUGH
8: ONE. WE HAD A LOT OF KIDS WITH ELEVATED LEVELS OF ANXIETY AND STRESS kids who are fearful coming to school, fearful of contracting COVID. We had uh an increase in students reporting suicidal ideation. It was a lot.
4: Data from the National Center for Education statistics shows that in the previous academic year, 76% of public schools reported concerns around student mental health, and only half said they felt equipped to address the problem. And data from emergency rooms show a rise in the number of kids seeking help for mental health crises. Even after schools closed for the summer, hospitals have continued to see children and adolescents seeking care for mental health. So healthcare providers and educators are expecting that kids are still struggling, especially in the country's most marginalized communities, where families are still reeling from the impacts of the pandemic.
14: Things like loss of life, loss of jobs, food insecurity, homes, you know, kids not having, you know, predictable homes, the the predictability and routine Completely
4: disrupted. Lisa Villanueva Beard is CEO of Teach for America, which caters to schools in underserved communities. She says her organization is sensitizing teachers to the emotional states of their students.
14: We have to actually equip our teachers to be able to approach classrooms in a trauma informed way, and they all want this. So, we, as part of our training curriculum, are really teaching our teachers how to be emotionally available. That's the right approach,
4: says psychologist Janice Beal, who works with schools in the Houston area.
3: Every morning, 5 minutes, check in with the students and have everybody share how they're feeling for that particular day.
4: Beal says it's something she's been telling teachers as they prepare for the school
3: year. So the teachers, we don't want them to be mental health professionals. We want you to be able to understand what mental health concerns may be in your classroom and to be able to recognize them so that you can refer them.
4: BEAL has also created a team of mental health ambassadors, students who have been trained as peer counselors.
3: The ambassador's role will be able to, if someone was you know, having some type of difficulty, to come and talk to them.
4: So kids feel more comfortable sharing their mental health struggles and seeking help before they reach a crisis point. Dr. Tammy Benton is Psychiatrist-in-Chief at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She says she's heartened by how proactive schools have been regarding student mental health going into the school year.
2: This year, what we can expect is a more open approach by schools and communities to understanding these mental health challenges and actually having much more education about how to respond.
4: And that gives her hope that this school year might make it a little easier for students to get help. Ritu Chatterjee. NPR News.
10: If you or a loved one is experiencing a mental health crisis, you can dial or text the new Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Lawyers for former President Trump and the Justice Department squared off today in a Florida courtroom. Trump's lawyers want a federal judge to appoint a special master, an independent person to review documents seized last month at Trump's Palm Beach residence, Mar a Lago. Lawyers for the Justice Department told the judge that's unnecessary, and they say it would interfere with their ongoing investigation of the former president. NPR's Greg Allen was in the courtroom, and Greg, what did the judge say about whether she's going to appoint a special master or not?
15: Well, she did not rule from the bench today, Ari. She said she would issue a written order in due course, in her words. In an order last month, she said though it was her preliminary intent to appoint a special master. And today, she asked the government what harm would be caused by an independent review of what's going on there. Justice Department lawyer Jay Brett said that Jay Bratt said it would slow down the investigation. He raised concerns about how the classified material would be handled by whoever does uh, serve in that role. And his main argument, though, was that the material seized belongs to the government, not to former President Trump. He said, uh, Bratz said he's no longer the president because of that he doesn't have the right to those documents. And that ends the analysis. What do Trump's lawyers want a special master to do? Well, it was interesting, in court today, Trump's lawyers started out talking about the need for the special master to review documents that may be subject to attorney-client privilege, and to return any that would be covered by that. Judge Eileen Cannon, who's a Trump appointee, by the way, asked them, well, what about executive privilege? And then one of Trump's lawyers, Jim Trusty, picked up on that, and he said, oh, yes, executive privilege is in play as well. And that, as you know, is a highly contentious issue, whether a former president can assert a claim of executive privilege against the current executive branch. The government objected to that position. It brought up that brought up a discussion of a case that involved President Richard Nixon, and that was back during the Watergate era, the Watergate investigation, and it was a case that Nixon lost. The government said firmly that it would be unprecedented for a former president to assert an executive privilege claim against the executive branch. Now the government
10: argues that it was just executing a search warrant the same way it does every day in cases all across the country,
15: but this is hardly an ordinary case, right? Right, and I think that's at the crux of the uh, of the uh, case that the Trump lawyers are making here. They told the judge that the search has raised questions about the integrity of the investigation and the need for transparency. They called the release in court documents of a photo this week that showed classified documents strewn over the Mar-a-Lago's carpeted floor, uh, basically a press release by the government. They said appointing a special master would help quote, restore order and public confidence in the process. They suggested that Trump has a right under the Presidential Records Act to access these documents. They said this isn't some uh, Department of Defense uh, staffer who stuck documents in a bag and snuck them out in the middle of the night. They seem to indicate this was much different from that. And they said a search that the search that was done at Mar-a-Lago raises, quote, a broad concern about the, for the institution of president. So the judge asked a lot of questions today and she listened attentively to all their arguments and will now have to just await her decision. She also
10: ordered more documents unsealed today, right? What are those?
15: Right, well, the, uh, she said an inventory of all the materials that were seized at Mar-a-Lago last month would be unsealed. That came at, uh, was approved by both sides. She also said a status report by the investigation team could be unsealed but there's another status report uh, that's being done by justice department staff who are reviewing this potentially privileged material they have a report out too and the, the judge said that would not be unsealed at this time that's because both the government and trump's team feel that it has sensitive information and they want it to remain sealed right now
10: that is npr's greg allen reporting from west palm beach florida thank you you're welcome
11: listening to
0: All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, a heads up if you're taking to the skies over the next few days. Airline pilots are warning that travelers may face more chaos this Labor Day weekend. Our story is up ahead. The Dow and S&P started the month of September by snapping a four-day losing streak. The Dow rose nearly a half percent, 146 points today, to close at 31,656. S&P gained three-tenths of a percent to close at 39.67. The NASDAQ dipped a quarter of a percent to end the day at 11,785. Cannabis industry leaders want to make it easier for you to get your pot delivered to your home. Delivery company owners and members of the state's Cannabis Advisory Board have created an online petition to loosen marijuana delivery regulations. Currently, regulations require two drivers per delivery and allow individual municipalities to ban marijuana delivery outright. Business news is coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 6.19.
16: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto
0: service for more than 67 years.
16: More at sullivantire.com.
0: Lovely evening. Clear skies overnight tonight, down about 55. Tomorrow should be nice once again. Light wind, sunshine, a little bit cooler, about 73 degrees. And then look for mainly sunny skies on Saturday, slightly warmer, about 80. Sunday, a mix of clouds and sunshine, 87 degrees. Then we should have lots of clouds around for Labor Day Monday, maybe even some showers. This is WBUR, 75 degrees
6: now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who'll do whatever it takes to save their congregation, in theaters and streaming on Peacock tomorrow. From OCLC through WorldCat.org, committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at WorldCat.org and from the Lemelson Foundation.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang,
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Unfortunately, there are no continents on the planet without sexual harassment, and that includes Antarctica. A new report reveals that sexual harassment and sexual assault are major problems at U.S. Antarctic facilities. The report was commissioned by the National Science Foundation, which runs the Antarctic program. The report found that nearly three-quarters of women working there felt sexual harassment was an issue. Nearly half were worried about sexual assaults. NPR's Joe Palka has been reading through the 273-page report and is here in the studio to tell us about it. Hey, Joe. Hey, Ari. What are some of the revelations in the report?
17: Well, one of the things that jumps out at you is how pervasive this problem seems to be. They quoted one of the people they interviewed as saying, every woman I know down there has had an assault or harassment experience that occurred on ice. On ice is what they call working down there. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a sentiment that they uh, heard from many, many different people. The report also said that many people didn't trust the officials they were supposed to report to when they had a problem because they thought – a, they might be there might be reprisals, or B, they were thinking that the, these people were more interested in protecting the agencies hmm. than protecting the people. Is there something about working in Antarctica that makes this more of a problem? Well, I've been to Antarctica, and it's very remote, and uh, even though the internet has made it smaller. It's just not a place that you can walk down the street and see anybody. Um, much of the year, these bases are totally inaccessible. The sun disappears for months in the winter. And that means the staff doesn't have anywhere to go or anyone to talk to. I spoke with Madeline Nash. She's an associate dean at the Australian National University. She studies harassment in, Australia, in Australia's Antarctic program.
18: You're so isolated and so detached from the sort of normal roles in society that often it makes it, sort of, for lack of a better word, it makes it easier to get away with inappropriate behavior that probably wouldn't be condoned, you know, back in normal life.
17: So imagine if it's your supervisor doing the harassing, harassing, it's not like you can go down the hall and complain. That supervisor's supervisor might be thousands of miles away. Has a problem like this been documented before? Well, Nash says many people who've worked in Antarctica know it's an ongoing issue.
18: Anecdotally, the information that's presented in this report is widely known that women in particular suffer greatly that sexual harassment
17: is a significant problem. But what's unique about this report is that it puts some numbers behind the problem and shows it's really pervasive. And now, to be fair, Nash says it was NSF that commissioned the study, so they're aware there's a problem. And now that it's out, what does National Science Foundation have to say about it? Well, Roberta Marinelli is head of the Office of Polar Programs.
19: It wasn't surprising to me to hear um, some of the stories that we heard. It's certainly disappointing.
17: Marinelli says one of the things she thinks will improve the situation is to make it easier and less frustrating for people to report incidents of harassment.
11: But more important than that is we have to create an environment in which this
17: kind of of behavior just isn't tolerated.
10: Those sound like the right words, but is there the will to actually do something?
17: Well, um, who can say for sure? Uh, there are some structural issues that make it difficult to make changes in the Antarctic. I mean, there's the military that transports people, they're contractors, they're scientists who have their own rules and institutions, they have to li- the rules they have to live by. So coming up with a strategy, strategy that's going to be acceptable to everyone is going to be a challenge. But at the end of the day, this is NSF's responsibility. That's NPR's Joe Palka. Thanks, Joe. You're welcome.
11: Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. All right. Today is getaway day for a lot of people traveling for the Labor Day holiday weekend. And the number of people flying is expected to be near pre-pandemic levels. That means you will probably find long lines, crowded gates and packed planes. And airline pilots are warning travelers that there could be more delays and cancellations. They've been picketing at airports today to call on airline management to fix the operational problems that have plagued air travel all summer long. We're going check in now with NPR's David Shaper who is at O'Hare Airport in Chicago right this very second. Hey David.
5: Hi Elsa. So can you just describe the
11: scene there like how busy is it? Are there any
5: problems yet? Yeah, you know, it's it's very busy. There was heavy traffic heading into the airport, long lines of check-in counters. The line for the security checkpoint was outside of the security area, so it was actually creating some very congested foot traffic in the area that I'm in. You know, I talked to one traveler who was upset because she had been waiting over a half an hour for a wheelchair, likely because of short staffing for wheelchair attendance, and she was concerned that she might miss her flight. But another traveler I talked to who's on his way to Las Vegas but as busy as it is here things are running more smoothly than he had expected although i think a lot of people's expectations are not all that high now <laughs> right but flights are on time here for the most part that's not how it's been much of the summer though and i talked to aviation consumer advocate bill mcgee about that and he thinks air travelers might be seeing more of the same this weekend
10: the fact is we've never seen this level of what the industry calls flight disruptions which is
13: you know extensive delays and cancellations and, you know, you couple that with all the unpaid
10: refunds. It's just been a miserable summer for air travel.
11: Ain't that right? Well, mm. we mentioned the picketing pilots are warning people of possible delays, more cancellations. What is their central message?
5: Well, it kind of depends on which airline the pilots fly for and what specific problems they've encountered at that airline. For pilots in America, the big issue has been scheduling. And the pilots say they feel that they're stretched too thin and pushed to the limit and the number of fatigue complaints is up substantially. Other pilots and other airlines want better working conditions and more rest between flights too. Most of the airlines have had these operational problems due to scheduling too many flights, more flights than they can actually staff due to a shortage of pilots and other employees. And they said that's what's at the heart of all these delays and cancellations this summer. Captain Roger Phillips is a 767 pilot for United Airlines and spokesman for the pilots union here. We want this fixed. We want the traveling public to be able to have a seamless
20: experience in the air, and and we're here to to make that happen as, as
5: quickly as possible. Now, many of the pilots' union contracts are expiring too, and so they're doing this informational picketing on their days off to try to pressure the airlines to also come to the bargaining table.
11: Well, in terms of travelers, I understand that the Department of Transportation has a new tool for air travelers so they can see like what they're owed from the airline, which might come in handy for people this weekend. Can you tell yeah. us about that?
5: Yeah, it's a new website, an online dashboard that more clearly explains what the airlines are required to do for you under the law when your flight is delayed or canceled. And it also provides side-by-side comparisons on what customer services they'll provide when flight disruptions are their fault. Like which ones will provide meal vouchers or cash if your flight is delayed more than three hours and whether they'll pay for a hotel room if you're stranded overnight.
11: That is NPR's transportation correspondent, David Shaper. Thank you so much, David.
5: Oh, my pleasure.
10: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. President Biden will deliver a primetime address on democracy tonight. Join us for special coverage and analysis. It starts at 8 tonight on WBUR and WBUR.org. As the drought continues in the state, officials are warning of the increased chance of wildfires breaking out. The risk is greater on days with low humidity and high winds. That's the kind of weather we have due in this weekend. Tonight, clear and dry. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should be sunny, breezy. Lows about 73. Sunny on Saturday. Partly cloudy skies on Sunday.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan with eight locations in New England proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakim Fund and its commitment to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. Join LZF for its Untold Stories event, September 22nd at the Royal Sonesta Hotel in Cambridge. Information, sponsorships, and tickets at thelennyzakemfund.org slash events. And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com.